It took centuries for people, for Chinese alchemists, to realize that gunpowder wasn't medicine, or that black powder wasn't medicine. Right. So they were they 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 were trying to make medicine, and they traded it as medicine. And then it wasn't until the iron foundry engineers started building these cast cylinders that you were like, "Holy crap! This isn't this isn't black powder. This is gunpowder. Right. This will revolutionize the f- the world of war, the, the the profession of war fighting." Yeah. They didn't recognize cannons. They didn't recognize yeah. torpedoes. They didn't recognize airplanes. Go in any point of history where a new emerging technology comes, everyone who's looking at it doesn't recognize it yeah. because they're extrapolating from the past. Right. And especially when the domain changes, you don't recognize it. Right. China burning their merchant fleet. They had the most powerful navy. Just could have just easily taken over North America right. and colonized it. Easy. Uncontested. Such, such a great point that it seems to be a recurrent blind spot for people yeah. and therefore an extremely important moral of the human story is that when the shelling point moves, you better, better fucking pivot. adapt yeah. quickly. Yeah. Otherwise, it could cost you literally everything adapt or die is is a is a section of the thesis hey everybody welcome to the what is money show i am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Jason Lowry, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thank you, Robert. I'm so happy to be here. So happy to have you here. We're in Miami um, on the eve here of Bitcoin 2023, doing a bunch of interviews back to back. We had Sailor yesterday. We got you today in the same seat. Uh, I think we're going to be hitting a lot of the same topics as well. So I'm super excited for this deep dive. 
Let's start with, and we had, obviously, for those of you just tuning in, we have a series together. We have six episodes, I think, in our series previously together, so we've explored a lot of these topics more in depth there. Um, But to start, I think we should just recap what is the purpose of warfare? How is it related to property, uh, the rule systems we build around property, like the rule of law, and then our belief systems? Because a lot of that, obviously, this is related to the book that you wrote, Soft War, um, and is going to take us down this particular branch of the rabbit hole today. Yeah, sure. When when we had our first discussion, that was early in my journey of writing this thing. And so I, I was really using that as an opportunity to just try to test different corners of this rabbit hole that we're diving down to see which one leads to the lower level. Mm-hmm. And and so I th- now that I've had almost two years since that conversation, I think I've kind of figured out what the wave tops are and I'm ready to start mm-hmm. bringing people down there. Um, so the whole book and the thesis was structured around understanding the function of warfare and how the form of warfare changes. So the function of warfare stays the same, but the form of warfare changes over time. So if you understand the function of warfare, what it's used for, that will actually help tip you off on being able to predict how the form of warfare will change. And I've felt from the start that there was something more about Bitcoin than just money, just coin. There was something even deeper. And I, and it, to me, what resonated was, oh my gosh, this could be a new form of, of warfare. So if we want to start like with an like overview of what warfare is, it's first important to recognize up front that war, this act of animals physically competing against each other for territory mm-hmm. or mating rights or whatever food, whatever they're competing for, this is like the most natural thing that you could observe empirically in nature. If you just like go outside and like watch, you'll see war. You'll see animals constantly fighting each other for control over territory, over food. They, they constantly fight each other, some species, to establish a pecking order over food, to decide who's, who eats, who starves. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is just something about nature. It turns out the world is scarce. It turns out the universe is a pretty cruel place and it doesn't do any favors for life. Life has to fight its way to survive. It has to fight for scarce limited resources. These are just the constraints that life inherited when it became life. And and we just have to acknowledge that up front. All animals, living creatures, fight for everything no. from the the first single-celled bacteria fighting for volume around uh, a thermal vent underwater to human beings fighting for control over the sea, the air, the land, and now space. Yeah. Power, this act of exerting energy over time for the sake of fighting 
mm-hmm. or securing resources through physical power is a is as old as life itself, as far as we know. Right. Okay. And in the in in the book, what I do is I open this idea of power projection by basically exploring all the key concepts of warfare without calling it warfare. Because if I call it warfare, people are going to get salty at me. Right. Um, you, people have um, reservations about these words. Sure, sure. They don't like these words. So it, it, the Darwinian, I, when you say that to me, I hear Darwinian struggle for existence. So we, we call it warfare in the human domain. And you're kind of backwards extrapolating that maybe onto nature to say it's at war. But but it's very true. Like I, I'm reflecting on the Instagram account, Nature is Metal, one of my favorite accounts. Like, yeah. They just show animals struggling all the time for existence. And yeah. that is, that's the nature of life in a universe of scarce resources. Yeah, that's the nature of nature. The nature of nature, yeah. And so life, you could examine the evolution of life as life discovering increasingly more clever ways to fight mm-hmm. or project power, as mm-hmm. you know, I say a lot. But what that means is just you have to be better at controlling that territory or you have to be better at capturing resources, capturing your food. You have to grow increasingly better at that in a very congested, contested, competitive, hostile environment filled with predators all after the same resources. And and what works, the strategies that work at this nature warfare is what we see around us today, is what survives. So the survivorship bias affects us. We have to recognize that whatever we see around us in nature today passed a very rigorous natural selection right. process. Yeah. Every fat and docile animal, like most of them are dead, yeah. they're gone. Okay, you got a couple of manatees here in yeah. like Florida, <laughs> but like, you know, we're, we're making sure not to kill those. But like, if you go look at throughout history, um, you'll notice, I'm talking about the history of nature here. Mm-hmm. You'll notice that the things at the top of the food chain, have you ever noticed how the things at the top of the food chain are usually like mean looking? Yeah. <laughs> like they're strong, they're intelligent, they have sharp teeth, they have sharp claws, they have sharp horns, they have, they're just, yeah. you know, rugged. Powerful. They're powerful, yeah. right? So, uh, the things that sir have survived over four billion years are the powerful things. So you know, based off of what you see around you, that power projection, this ability to to f- fight well or to uh, establish control over territory well, is how you survive. It's mm-hmm. it's the uh, it's what nature favors. Right. Okay. So. Fast forward four billion years from single-celled organisms competing for control over nutrient volume, nutrient-rich ro- volumes of volcanic rock, mm-hmm. to uh, let's say I don't know, like four hundred thousand years ago, you get to what became early human beings, like anatomically modern human beings. Um. Compared to like other animals throughout the history of nature, we humans are pretty weak. 
Like we're not very athletic. We're not uh, very powerful. Some clearly more powerful than others. But like, you know, by comparison to the woolly mammoth like right. you're, or the saber-toothed tiger, you're, right. you're nothing. Um, but what humans started to be able to do really well is uh, think yeah. really well. Um, we talked in our last series about how for whatever reason, human beings, maybe it was their opposable thumbs, maybe it was just a combination of factors, but we ha- we figured out how to utilize exogenous sources of power, meaning instead of burning our own calories mm-hmm. to produce power, mm-hmm. we started burning everything else. Right. So we learned how to control fire, and by learning how to control fire, we could tap into exogenous supplies of energy all around us. And we scorched the world. We killed off a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of things went, went extinct. Mm-hmm. Another benefit that we talked about with, with f- the ability to control fire is the ability to control your food. If you can control your food, you can unlock a lot more energy per unit volume of, of food. Yeah. So like a difference between like a raw steak and a cooked yeah. steak, you can actually get more energy out of a cooked steak. Yeah. Uh, because your body has to work less hard to process it. That, pre-digesting that, it. Yep, yeah. Break it down. So we talked about all that. All of that energy goes into our brains, which helps us think even more, even better. Yeah. And then we get, you fast forward to somewhere around 50,000 years ago, and we get the levels of consciousness that they started to have. And you can see it in the fossil record when consciousness sparks. This is when we start with art and whatnot. We start with art. Yeah. We start with symbols. Yeah. So art is, is a way of expressing symbolism. Mm-hmm. And uh, we start reflecting, we start showing a belief in things that extend fo- beyond our experiential knowledge. So mm-hmm. a, a clear belief in death or, or a, and a presence beyond death. Right. Um, the way that anatomically modern humans started burying their dead indicated they think there's something special about, mm-hmm. like there must be something after death. Why would you take all the time to prepare your dead? Most animals just discard and just yeah. move on. So um, that's all to say that we became really smart. And it, it was like a blessing and a curse. Humans are like walking contradictions because being very smart, having high order intentionality, meaning you can think like other people. You have so much extra brain power that you can right. think like your right. prey. Right. means you can predict what your prey is going to do, yeah. which makes you a really good hunter. This is like game theory, right? Like, do they know that I know that they yep. know? Yeah. High order intentionality and then high theory of mind. Mm-hmm. So you have so much, because you, you're burning so much fi- of your food, you're cooking so much of your food, you're feeding so much of this highly intensive, energy intensive mm-hmm. thinking mechanism on your head. You have enough brain power, like literal brain power left over to think like your prey simultaneously as you think as yourself. Mm-hmm. That's what order of intentionality means. Mm-hmm. I can predict what that elk is going to do. Yeah. So, so for a woolly mammoth, we look like puny. We look like Yoda. But what makes Yoda badass? Yoda knows what you're going to do before you do. So he's already positioned himself with his saber seconds before you do so fighting a jedi is like impossible 
unless you're also a Jedi because yeah. they can see what you do. They have the high order of intentionality in mind. They can see what you do before you do. Yeah. Um, so like a woolly mammoth go suddenly a woolly mammoth going against uh, a human is, is, you know, the tides have turned because the, the humans can predict what you're going to do ahead of time. Mm-hmm. The, the humans know that that pack of elk or caribou is going to be in that Canyon passing from there to there during this season at this month. Yeah. So they're just going to place themselves at the top of the Canyon. Yeah. And, and when the, when the, the caribou are trapped in the, in the Canyon passing through it, we're just going to rain down spears on you. You won't even see us. Right. You won't, you, there'll be no way for you to fight back if you're trapped yeah. and then done. So, um, being smart makes you an extremely good hunter. And that's where humans really just started to just right. own everything yeah. is their ability to predict high order of intentionality, ability to predict what the prey is going to do way, mm-hmm. way ahead of time. High order of intentionality and theory of mind also gives you the ability to think abstractly. So humans can go back to their cave and they can draw their hunting strategies mm-hmm. on the wall. So you'll notice like a lot of early drawings are hunters mm-hmm. fighting and hunting like pictures of people hunting stuff. You, yeah. you have the ability to sit around a campfire and use your brain power to imagine what the future is going to be right. and, and plan out the hunting strategy before you actually get there. Right. That's part of what makes you a bit able to predict what your, your prey is going to do ahead of time. You've been thinking about right. it for months. And just so passing that knowledge across generations. Yeah. 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 So you can, so that's another one. No. But the, again, humans are walking contradictions. So the trade-off of being a really good hunter, being really good at thinking as your prey, is that you become highly empathetic towards mm-hmm. your prey. Mm-hmm. You'll notice like when a jaguar kills something, it's just dead eyes. Like he doesn't feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. When a tiger kills something, dead eyes. Doesn't mm-hmm. care. Shark, you know, the jaws line, shark's eyes are like a doll's eyes. They just don't care. Um, if you have higher order intentionality and theory of mind, that makes you, and you can think like your prey, you can feel like them too. Mm-hmm. And especially if they're mammals, mm-hmm. all mammals communicate pain the same way. Right. So the walking contradiction is ironically, the best hunters also feel the guiltiest about the act mm-hmm. of hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, we are so, we, it, it, it sucks to kill living, breathing mammals. Um, and we know this is true because look at, uh, so I used to be a, uh, my, or my grandfather is a beef cattle farmer, raised beef cattle. Mm-hmm. So your, your steaks are the, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we're not milking these cows, we're slaughtering them. Um, and I have never killed a, a, a cow before. Um, I outsource that to others because it makes me uncomfortable to kill cows. Mm-hmm. If, if they're, I know I'm a predator and I know I got to eat cows. Mm-hmm. I know they're delicious. I don't apologize for being an apex predator. I'll eat steak right now, <laughs> but, um, it sucks. And so I want to not do it and I want to find someone who can do it as in a way that will cause the least amount of pain possible for mm-hmm. the cow. Right. Okay. But, uh, so have you killed a cow? I've never killed a cow. Okay. Have you fished have you gone fishing yes. before yes so isn't that interesting yeah. have you killed a bug definitely i see a spider that spider's dead <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like if i see a mosquito that thing's dead yeah 
Yeah. Okay. The difference between this sounds weird. Okay. This is going to like, I mean, I don't know if I talked about this with you, but I know I talked about it in, in soft war. Mm-hmm. Um, difference between a fish and like a chicken or a cow or the other stuff that we enjoy eating is that a fish doesn't scream when you kill it. A fish doesn't have eyelids to wince. Right. It doesn't have muscles in its face right. to contort, to communicate its pain and suffering like the other animals. Yeah. So people have no problem right. hunting a fish, taking it up, filleting it live, scaling it, disemboweling it, yeah. throwing it in the microwave, on the boat, eating it right there. No problem. Because it doesn't scream right. and howl and do all the things yeah. that we empathize with. The ethical vegetarians and whatnot, many of them will just be pescatarian. Right, probably for that very reason. Yeah. It's just easier to eat fish. There's less of a, an emotional connection, I guess, yeah. because of the anatomical differences. Because of the spe- difference in the species. Yeah. That uh, fish and bugs communicate differently mm-hmm. than mammals do. Yeah. Mammals communicate primarily through uh, eyes, especially humans, mm-hmm. um, through facial features, mm-hmm. muscular features, and through, you know, noise yeah um so like a happy cow looks the same as a happy puppy Mm -hmm. they bounce around they you know they're they're pleasant yeah they um you'll notice that like when we domesticate uh, wolves dogs have different eyes they actually have extra muscles in their eyelids Mm -hmm. so they can move their eyebrows and so they can actually communicate more with humans yeah docile or domesticated animals will uh, have more human features. Yeah. Like their eyes are the, you know, the irises are smaller. They have more whites in their eyes because that's how humans primarily mm-hmm. communicate, not right. through language, through, yeah. through body language. Yeah. Okay. So uh, humans are walking, talking contradictions. We're the apex predator. We kill and hunt better mm-hmm. than anything, but we, the, the downside of being so good at Give predicting our prey is feeling bad about it. Wow. Interesting. So we outsource the hunting to butchers. Yeah. Okay. And, and this gets back to war. Again, all animals fight each other for territory. Mm-hmm. All animals establish dominance hierarchies, most of them, at least mammals, mm-hmm. pack animals. Um, they fight over their resources. Mm-hmm. They fight each other to determine pecking order. That's how they settle their disputes. That's how they defend their property. That's how they determine who has legitimate control over what property. Mm-hmm. The territory belongs to the alpha because the alpha fought his way up there. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if humans are simultaneously the best hunter fighters, but also contradictorily, they feel the guiltiest about it. Then what do you do? You're going to do the same thing that I do with my beef cattle. I outsource the slaughtering and the butchering of my beef cattle to a select group of people who specialize in that thing because it makes me uncomfortable mm-hmm. to do it and we outsource the defense or the security of our territory mm-hmm. the fighting to the military yeah and so the the military is just that specialized group of people who do the dirty work that no one else wants to do in terms of getting to the, when 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 our polities break down to the point where we just have to resort back to the natural way of settling disputes, whether it be property, whether it be polities, whether what ideology or theology or philosophy is the governing thing, when we have to return to our roots, yeah. to the natural way of settling disputes, the military is the people 
uh, that do it. They've been specially trained to overcome that guilt yeah. and uh, the uh, strong desire not to harm another human being. Right. It's not natural to want to just go around blindly killing other human beings because if it were, we would go extinct really fast. Right, right, Obviously, right. it would be an existential <laughs> yeah. problem. Yeah. That's, yeah, so we, it culminates, though, back to the physical power projection game that it had. The struggles always get to that point. Well, yeah. Well, I guess one way to look at it is it kind of like started that way. Yeah. And then once humans started having like six orders of intentionality and super and being super empathetic, we got to this point where we're like, damn, okay, there's this limited resource, this continent Mm -hmm. or this small country or all of this freshly irrigated land. Like who has the pecking order over that resource? We can we can do it the natural way, mm-hmm. and we can fight for it, but that sucks. Right. That's that's fratricidal. Um, can we find another way to do it? Right. Fighting in another domain. Yeah. So so or otherwise. Well, the way that it seems to have started is okay to settle disputes over property and to achieve pecking order over property, you know, within our species. Instead of having to kill each other to do it, let's adopt a common belief system. Yeah. Let's adopt a common philosophy or common theology or yeah. common ideology. Mm-hmm. Let's agree to this belief system. And uh, that way we'll, you know, we'll be able to resolve our disputes without having to resort to the, right. the power projection yeah. competition. And then penalize people when they abdicate from that rule set. Right. But if you, but how are you penalizing them when they abdicate? Well, what it's legal and then it becomes physical if it has to, right? Right. Yeah. So, you know. The th- which is legal is basically the threat of physical and then physical. Yeah. So the way it wor- it seems to work is we agree to a common belief system, but like the problem is belief systems are trust-based systems. You have to trust that your counterparty yeah. is going to- Act the same way as you. Yeah. It's yeah. going to follow that belief system. Or you have to trust that your counterparty is going to not try to exploit the belief system. So we could come to an agreement that that laptop is yours. Mm -hmm. I won't take it from you. And then I could turn around and grab that thing and put it in my lap and said, I'm not taking it from you. I'm just borrowing it. So I'm exploiting that belief system. And that's private property right there. Yeah. It's a belief system. Yep. So yeah, private property. Yeah. Animals don't have laws. Right. They don't like inscribe property rights. The property rights of an animal is I'm going to take your whatever they can't take yeah <laughs> that's like yeah. you know mm. uh, you know i i think mm. it was on your talk is like you know the, the, a lion doesn't sit down with a a, a zebra and negotiate with right it right on a common right you know but it, humans are smart enough to realize that we can't go killing each other over every sandwich as yeah. we said previously. yes we talked yeah so you can uh we can come if we come to a mutually beneficial agreement we can both flourish uh, and we can mutually benefit from each other without having to fight. Yeah. And that's awesome, but it's a trust-based system. We have to trust each other not mm-hmm. to renege on the deal or to just un- be unsympathetic to whatever the agreed-upon belief yeah. system is. And inevitably, people break that trust. Sure. Right? The, the root problem mm-hmm. with laws, with common belief system, is all the trust that's required to make it work. If people are untrustworthy, right. it doesn't work. Just yeah. like the root problem with the money, as Satoshi said. Yeah, so I, I yeah, that's deliberate. I'm directly yeah. quoting him on that. Okay, so 
uh, also in, in the um, software, I talk about primordial economics. This started with your conversation, but I finally put an equation to it. Every resource has a benefit to attack. Every, everything has a benefit to attack. Mm -hmm. Everything has a cost of attacking mm -hmm. uh, or a cost of being attacked. So, um, like the way deterrence works is well, let's adopt a common belief system. Um, that's your laptop. If we just, you know, if we just settle it there, then there's no cost of attacking your laptop. Mm -hmm. There's no cost of me taking your laptop. There's no marginal cost of attack. Mm -hmm. As long as we have this of a belief system, I could exploit you. I said, I'm not, I'm not taking it. I'm just borrowing it. And you're going to be angry about it. Okay. So the benefit to cost ratio of, of taking your laptop or taking your property, if you don't impose any cost on me for doing so is inef infinite. Like there's infinite benefit for me taking stuff if there's no cost or penalty for me doing it. So if you want to deter someone or if you want to physically secure your property, you have to decrease the benefit to cost ratio of attacking your property. It works the same way through property as it does through a belief system. If you want people to not exploit your belief system, if you want people to not be unsympathetic to your belief system, you have to decrease the benefit to cost ratio of exploiting you through your right. belief system, right. which is where enforcement comes in. Right. Enforcement is the act of increasing the cost of breaking the law, being unsympathetic to the law, exploiting you through the law. Right. Enforcement works both ways. The, the, the people in, in the higher positions of authority can enforce the laws, but if those people become too oppressive, people can enforce it back. Right. And, they, and, that, and that's called revolution or civil war. Right, right, right. But the, the point is uh, laws and our common belief systems are demonstrably ineffective at securing our property rights alone. Over and over and over again. trust-based. For 5,000 years, these trust-based belief systems that we adopt get exploited yeah. time, time, and time again. Just to specify, when we say trust-based, to expand upon that a little bit, we're saying it's requiring interpersonal trust, right? Like trust between man and man. Yeah. To, to play by the same rules, to not defect from that rule set. Yeah. Because I think it, there's a little bit of ambivalence, perhaps, where we talk about, like Bitcoin, you're trusting mathematics to do what they say they will do. That's that's a different kind of trust than interpersonal trust, where I'm trusting someone to do what they say they will do. Yeah. So um, when I talk about trust, I'm talking about trusting your counterparty or whoever you've made the, the right. property rights agreement with. Right. So we say, listen, this plot of irrigated land, we're going to call this Italy. Uh -huh. This is ours. And you barbarians... You know, you're like, you, you have to agree that this is ours. And so you can go out and shake hands and take pictures. I guess they didn't do that back in the day, mm -hmm. but you can sign your agreement that says, okay, that area is yours, yeah. but you are trusting your counterparty, counterparty to uphold that end of agreement, yeah. to be sympathetic to that belief system. Okay. Again, the reason why they do this is because we don't want to fight each other. That's going to be a messy right. process. That's going to be expensive. Right. Just give me Italy. You take this other thing. Right. We're good. Okay. Problem with trust, it's demonstrably ineffective security strategy. Right. Because there's no benefit. There, there's no cost of, of being untrustworthy. 
you can you can have the Munich Agreement and you can shake hands with Hitler and you can go back and say, look, we just solved this. We're not going to be attacked. Okay, mm -hmm. let's see how good you are at securing your resources using that strategy. Right. And so we have, once again, humans are contradictions. We don't want to fight each other, so we adopt common belief systems. But these com common belief systems make us vulnerable to being attacked, mm -hmm. which inevitably devolves back into war. Mm -hmm. The base layer way of settling disputes, of determining determining property rights is war is we fight over it right to solve this dispute because you're untrustworthy we can't come to an agreement we can't adopt the common belief system right and even if you are a trustworthy you are for now yeah but what if i become a huge booming society with sure. exorbitant wealth or if things become scarce or whatever there's good or things get us yeah exact opposite to defect right yep. so that that's the function of war that doesn't change right that it is that activity which we use to resolve disputes over scarce resources and establish pecking orders? Yeah, I guess you would say the function of war is physical security over your stuff, over right. your property, over your food. The function of war is uh, settling disputes in a zero trust way. Yeah. I don't have to trust you. Yeah. Like if we want to solve a dispute over whose laptop that is and we fight over it, we don't have to trust each other. Right, right. Um, the, the physics settles it. Yeah, the uh, uh, I love the line. I was just at Disney World last weekend on Pirates of the Caribbean, and you get get in, and it's like, dead men tell no tales. Yeah, it's like dead people don't lie. Yeah. Dead people don't break deals. Yeah, like you don't have to worry. Yeah, and it sounds brutal, but again, this is nature. Is Nature's is. metal. Yeah, this is how it Nature's works. Metal. So that's the function of war, but you said the form has changed over time. Now, yeah, I just just to say this because it reminded me of it but I've, when i've talked about money i've said the same thing actually the function of money remains constant it's always to express value over space and time but the form changes has changed a lot yeah it's a systems engineering way of thinking this yes, yeah is if you want to break down any complex system you divide its function from its form mm -hmm. and generally speaking for technologies you focus on the function because uh, the form always changes. Right. So like new technology is just the form changing over right, time, right, but the right. function remains the same. Typing, a typewriter's function has changed, has, has remained the same. Right. Its form has changed. That's it's right. now a screen, but it- Telecommunications, so, right? Yeah. We used to use some Everything signals, is, carrier pigeons, yes. telegraph, how to talk, smartphone. Yeah. Yeah. How to talk and how to fight is the same function, yeah. or the purpose of fighting, the purpose of communication is the same. Yeah. How you do it, the form of it, the physical right. form of it changes. Right. So, um, but before we go specifically to the form of warfare, since we're on the topic of systems engineering, is you have to, in systems engineering, you also have to recognize the complex emergent behavior of the systems that you're building. Mm -hmm. So the comp, there is as much as people hate to admit it, because everyone hates talking about war, but, uh, because it sucks, um, but there's a benefit to warfare. There's a enormous benefit mm -hmm. to warfare. Mm -hmm. um, Bitcoiners should understand the benefit of warfare. The benefit of warfare is decentralization of control over resources. Mm -hmm. If you looked at Earth from space, you'll note that no single person or polity has centralized control over land, mm -hmm. over all the freshly irrigated land. Control over the land is decentralized because of the power projection game of the fight right so as a second order effect of this bloody fight for five ten thousand years 
control over the land is decentralized. No single person or polity has ever been able to gain and maintain centralized control right. over this underlying resource. Because when they do, when Hitler comes or Genghis Khan comes, suddenly it becomes extraordinarily energy intensive and expensive physically for them to gain and maintain centralized control. Because everyone... That's right. And it does ebb and flow, right? The yeah. Centralizes over time and then decentralizes. Yeah, but even if there's two great powers or three great powers, that's still decentralized. Yeah. You know, as long as no... Uh, and then even if, let's say, for a short period of time, there is a successful 51% attack on land and there is someone who has majority yeah, control. the great. Yeah. Most of the world's population. Exactly. Yeah, you can achieve it for a little bit, but can you sustain it? That's hard. Right. So that's like the benefit of, you know, like, for example, Bitcoin. You can 51% attack Bitcoin for a short duration of time, but how long can you sustain that mm -hmm. attack? Right. It's That's hard, but we'll get to that. So it's important to note that like, oh, and by the way, another great way of, uh, you know, great benefit of warfare is when people start oppressing you through your belief system or exploiting exactly. you through your belief system. War is how you escape that oppression. Right, 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 right. You can't, uh, right. Jeff Booth, you can't, change the system from within the system. Right. If you've adopted a common belief system, right. You you're you're trapped through exploitation of that belief system. You, right. You so when there are disputes within the logical or ideological domain, mm -hmm. you can exit that domain and resolve them in the physical. Yeah. Uh so usually like how we try to do it is you have a judge or a jury. Here's we're in the same system. We have the virtually the same ideologies, but there's a dispute. This is my property. This is their property. What we do is we go up to a higher authority of some ideological authority. We hire a judge and the judge adjudicates that dispute. Okay. But the problem with that is you're assuming the judge is impartial. Yeah. And how can he be, he or she be impartial? You don't know. Right. So, uh who says the judge's ideology is the right sure. ideology? Absolutely. Who judges the judge? Right? Exactly. So the the I guess if I'm hearing you correctly, the important benefit of warfare is this emergent property uh, that physical power projection creates decentralization or decentralized control over resources. Yeah, the second order effect. So rather than centralizing. Warfare all under one ideological structure. The fact that there's always this opt-out strategy into the physical yeah. has actually created these 200-some-odd polities of decentralized control architectures. Yeah, imagine how awful it would be if we had one world government. Exactly. No one would want that. Exactly. We know for sure yeah. that no one would want that because every time anybody has tried to create the one government, we've gone to world wars over it. Yeah. You, you display what you want through your actions and people will line up and die to prevent one world government. Right. Because that's a huge security vulnerability. You will be exploited right. if there is one ruling class for everything. Yeah. What did the Zabo say? Trusted third parties are security holes. If you have one trusted third party, it's a gaping security hole. Yeah. So, um, so again, wrapping it back up before we get into the form of warfare, humans great hunters we can think well uh but we also feel bad about our hunting um so we try if we want to and we're smart so we try to adopt common belief systems so we don't have to kill each other and then we you know outsource the butchering and slaughtering of and systemic enslavement of animals 
uh, and you know, genocide of animals to, we just kind of don't pay attention to that, but we know that society and modern civilization is built upon that. Right. Um, we just don't think about where our state comes from. And then we try to resolve the rest through belief systems. That's the uncomfortable reality that no one wants to talk about, but you have to, if you want to understand from first principles, why Bitcoin is so awesome. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the complex emergent benefit of warfare is decentralization of control over these resources. By the way, I mentioned it briefly, the domestication of animals proves that there is a causal relationship between uh, docility, the, the lack of inclination to want to fight, mm. and exploitation. Mm. So the way what domestication means is we take a pack animal, a fierce auric or a, or a jungle fowl or a wolf, and then we, you know, fence them in, we entrap them, and then we literally cut the balls off of the mean ones, and then we only breed the the less mean ones. And then you do that right. for 10,000 years and you suddenly create an entirely different species that is not aggressive because it doesn't have the testosterone right. levels. Uh, it's not... Um, uh, it, it's not inclined to bite and snarl and fight off um, anything. And so like sheep... Uh, you know, the difference between a boar and a pig is the is right. the pig doesn't have the the, tusk, yeah. the tusks and it doesn't ram you and like you'll you can you can you like see all these like um pictures of people like cuddling with dogs. I, I just got a dog. Yeah. I love my dog. Um my dog is a genetically modified wolf. Yeah. It's a I recognize that. Yeah. But you see like people with their sheep and their like cows and you don't realize that that is the ultimate form of predation. Right. You have turned your species, like the children of the jet of the right. cat or the, the wolf are now licking the feet of the children of that ape that we now call humans. Right. You are so predatory that you have taken mm. the will and capacity and inclination to fight you out of that animal and bred it into something that literally worships you. That's so that's domestication. So interesting. There's a book called River Out of Eden. I think Dawkins wrote it. And he describes uh species as like digital rivers of genetic information across time. Yeah. And so what you're describing with domestication is you basically forked that river. Yep, right. Forked. So this is this is my river yep. now. This, I like this animal lives to serve me. Yeah. And or my and species rather. It was kind of a weird it started with like, uh, you know, irrigation. We need to dredge up soil. We need that auric to like pull this plow to dredge mm -hmm. up the soil. But that auric's mean. He kicks a lot and he, you know, stabs us with his. And so, okay, we'll kill that one, eat that one, and mm -hmm. breed that docile one that's nice to me. And do yeah. that over 10,000 years and you right. create fat, docile cows that you can throw rocks at them and they're just like, yeah. Which is, so this artificial selection is quite literally the opposite of natural selection. Yeah, right? it's artificial selection. We yeah. deliberately bred them to not put up a fight. Right. And maybe if it, you did it one with one species, you could say, okay, that's correlation. Yeah. That doesn't, we can't. But we've done it. But we've done it across so many different yeah. species, across so many different time right. periods, across every continent, you know, A-B testing, mm -hmm. A-B testing, randomized experimentation, taking all the randomization uh, and factor that in 
Domestication, the lack of the will and capacity to put up a fight leads to systemic exploitation and abuse at enormous scale. By breeding out the power projection capabilities. By breeding out the power. Turn wolves into designer dogs. Yeah, so like any domesticated species, they're not as sexually dimorphic. So the boys look like the girls. Right. You can't tell the difference anymore. It's a good lesson for what we see in society today. Domestication (laughs) is, uh, you know, I I say domestication is dangerous. And if it applies to, uh, you know, a mammal, it it applies to humans too. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a civilian civilization, if you're a polity, a group of people, um, that what's the quote that I always don't get it right. It's like strong times or we like tough times create. Hard men. Hard times make strong men. Strong men make good times. Good times make weak men. Weak men make hard times. Yeah. Times make strong men. That is a yeah. perfect encapsulation of the ph- phenomenon of domestication. Yeah. Is um, you become top dog, become the badass, you become the best, most powerful polity, and then, and then you go uncontested for a while. Kids are spoiled and lazy and corrupt. And yep, they don't understand power projection. They don't understand the importance and the value of being physically aggressive. Yeah. And what happens then? Hannibal shows up. Mm-hmm. Genghis Khan shows up. Alexander the Great shows up. Napoleon shows up. Every time the primordial economists will come back because, mm-hmm. because you aren't physically aggressive, you aren't inclined or strong enough to defend yourself, mm-hmm. the benefit-to-cost ratio of attacking your polity is high Mm -hmm. and I'm going to take your stuff. Right. Welcome back to nature. (laughs) Okay. That's war. In a nutshell, we call it war. You can call it whatever you want. I call it nature or primordial economics. Darwinian struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, the gold investment letter. The gold investment letter helps sophisticated investors navigate capital markets and maximize their profits in trading gold, silver, and mining stocks. The gold investment letter seeks out the most undervalued companies and identifies special situations in the mining sector, and then provides in-depth analysis on both their financial positions and future prospects. The gold investment letter explores many complex domains, such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends, all with the goal of making you a better investor. The Gold Investment Letter offers a free version and a paid premium version, and I strongly recommend you at least sign up for the free version because after having read a few of these issues, I can promise you it is a treasure trove of good information. You can sign up for the free newsletter today at goldinvestmentletter.com. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, It's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. 
CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. That's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Um, the form has changed a lot over time. Sticks and spears. If I want to impose a physical cost, like if I want to physically constrain you from taking my stuff, or if you want to physically constrain me um, from taking your laptop, you can use your arms. That works great unless I've got fire mm-hmm. or a sword, you know, a blade, bludgeon, sword, whatever. Okay, you're going to have to get smart on how to swing a blade if you want to, uh, you know, like be competent at defending your laptop. Right. We go down this path. All right. So humans, because they're smart, they get really good at making more powerful technologies to do this game and more efficient technologies to do this game. A blade is a much more efficient way to project power because you take all that energy and you put it on the small thing and it cuts right through, right? It's efficient use of power projection. Um, Even more efficient use is exogenous supply of power. I'm just going to burn this bad boy down. I'm not going to use it. That's where the cleverness comes in, right? Like the sharpness of the blade is you're, you're projecting maximum power into minimal surface area. So right. it yeah, the, creates the most cutting power. Intelligence helps you find the most efficient use of power right. projections. It's like leverage points or something. Yeah, I don't have to go through this brute force bludgeon thing. Like, I'm not going to fight you hand to hand. I'll lose that fight. Well, maybe not if you know if you're black but black belt in jujitsu. That's true. Yeah, and yeah. so I have that intelligence, and I know that, and yeah. I can just my th- big thing whenever I we would do like combatives in the military is the guillotine choke. No, I'll just let you come at me. I'll fall on my back, and then I'll just guillotine choke you out. No. I'm sorry, um, and that's how I win. I can beat people as long as they don't know that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. I can do it, but if once they know, that's like my only trick. Yeah. It's my only shot. <laughs> So if you're, you're screwed, you, just give it up the whole Yeah, <laughs> crap. <laughs> uh, um, but that's how I would like, you know, be, but, you know, or I could just shoot you. Yeah. You know, or I could just um, wait until you're asleep mm-hmm. and, or I could put something in your water. Yeah. Like there's a lot of ways that you can, uh, you know, have this. And so humans have experimented with that over at least 10,000 years. We know for sure that warfare, this act of like large scale physical power competitions between polities of human beings is at least 10,000 years old. It's at least twice as old as writing. Mm-hmm. Um, important point to note, right? The warfare is twice as old as like this act of subscribing to the similar belief systems and like writing it down. Right. Um, but like, yeah, intelligence comes in finding those more efficient ways. So you, you play that out and it's like, you look over time and the way that people project power has become increasingly more powerful and increasingly more efficient because we're putting our brain 
power, literally brain power, expending the energy to think of more clever mm -hmm. ways to do it. We call those that power projection technology weapons. Mm -hmm. That's like the name we give for it, but mm -hmm. I don't want people to get hung up on the names. Right. The point is we're coming with coming up with increasingly more powerful and efficient ways to win wars. Yeah. And to defend our property. Again, this is natural selection here. We're base layer, this is how nature works. Mm -hmm. Okay, if we want a zero trust, egalitarian um, way uh, of settling our pro property disputes, then physical power competitions is the only way nature is. There's no substitute. Yeah, yeah, there's no substitute for physical power. All right, and and so as the you know technology changes, that's the form of warfare changing. Mm -hmm. So when we first started defending our irrigated land um we hired armies to do mm -hmm. it by the way we know that the um that the so i think we talked about this no i talked about this with preston nature know tells us what the honey the solution to the honey pot problem is like if you've created a precious resource that everyone wants a tasty precious resource like honey or irrigated land what is nature what is nature determined is the way that you defend a, a hive of honey. You sting the crap out of anyone who tries to take it. Okay. So uh, a hornet, you know, to use sailor's terms, a hornet is something that stings anyone that tries to take the honey. Why does it do that? To increase the, the cost of attacking the honey. Right. Okay. To decrease the benefit to cost ratio of attacking the honey. If if a, if a honeybee stings you, the honeybee's dead. It's gonna die. It's right. in order to get away from you. It's got it sinks that thing so deep in your skin that it physically like disembowels itself as right. it flies away. It's gonna die. So the purpose of a stinger is not self-defense. The purpose of a stinger is systemic defense. We are defending the honey. Mm -hmm. We are going to sacrifice our lives to impose a cost. So you'll at least think twice before you reach your hand in there and take right. it. Okay, so. Nature tells us what the solution to the honey pot problem is. You sting the attacker. An right. army is a bunch of people who sting, like literally they carry around stingers, knives, swords, mm -hmm. or they shoot their stingers through bullets at anyone who tries to take their honey, their, their irrigated land. Right. So that is, is the savings of the commonwealth or yeah. whatever that is of a, of a nation, right? Whatever resources are being attacked. Yeah. And yeah. you can do, you can... You can impose a physically prohibitive cost or increase the physical cost of attacking your resource different ways. You could build a wall mm -hmm. or you could put it behind a vault and you're, you're making it physically more difficult to get right. to your honey. That's a good point. So the building of the wall or the stingers, we would call that a weapon versus a, a defensive mechanism, but the yeah. purpose is the same. It's, or it's a different form, but similar function in that it's increasing the cost yeah. of attack. The way I separate it is it's a, uh, Active versus passive. Right. A wall is a passive power projection system. Yeah. A wall will hurt you. Yeah. A wall will harm you. Okay? If you don't believe me, go punch a wall. Right. <laughs> okay? Like, yeah. It sucks yeah. to punch a wall. Yeah. Okay? The wall is, in, you know, projecting power, right? Um, you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. If you try to punch a wall, all that force of your punch is going straight back into your hand. Right. That's going to hurt. Yeah. Okay. So wall hurts people, but it, it's a passive form of power projection. It yeah. doesn't do anything. 
until you try to attack right. it. But it, it's still like, you know, we get to back to colonization attacks. If I uh, walk into a new country and build a fortress, like what do you think the people who lived at that country before you built the fortress think about your, your walls? Do you, th- do you think they think that's a defensive only strategy? No, you just freaking invaded my land and built a castle on my, mm-hmm. on my property. So it's you can you can project power and offensively and passively at the same time. You can you can build a the you know big ass wall, right? Like that's what the Chinese did mm-hmm. um to 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 basically claim this area. Yeah. So we just have to kind of get over this in my opinion. I know we've talked about this is like it's easier for me to delineate the form of these different quote unquote weapons yeah. using active or passive versus offense or defense because yeah. you can use passive things as defense. The best use of a shield is to bludgeon people, not to block. I, I, and I think we'll get into this more as we go, but there does seem to be in the logical domain, these binaries can make sense, right? On, yeah. off, up, down. But in physical reality, things tend to be much more complex, interconnected, recursive feedback loop driven yeah so when we say things like oh that's either offensive or defensive things get very murky when you talk about like encrypted messages yeah right it's like well or if i planted misinformation inside of your communication network like it gets very it's not typically binary offensive or defensive it's maneuver warfare however as we'll get into later there's the way we frame things also shapes the way we perceive them or conceive them and the there's the the word defense is so loaded because the way most people use defense is to say this is a morally justified way of projecting power. Right. It's to morally justify the act of shooting the person. Right. Okay. But like, the, you know, from a technical standpoint, from a first principles physics standpoint, that means nothing. Mm-hmm. So we just have to, you know, accept that there is some nuance to this conversation, especially when we start getting into other domains. But, it, yeah. you know, in um I talk about this in the book the 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 most successful offensive strategy in nature is colonization it is a defense only strategy every plant mm-hmm. is a is a thing that just builds a bunch a thick membrane a wall and just grows and it invades a territory right. without ever having to sh- for mo- in most cases you know right. do anything else but defense only Growth. It just grows in a way that's super resistant to active attack. And yeah. Therefore, it, it is engaging in an active, expanding its dominion at least. Yeah. Not an attack per se, but it's expanding its footprint. Yeah, but like to the to the tree that's there that wants that sunlight, the expanding dominion of the vine yeah. looks an awful light, lot like an attack. Right. You can right. say, I'm just expanding my dominion. Sure. Or you notice just like boring my laptop, right? Yeah, you'll notice how um, practically every invasion is, you know, when the invader invades a country, they call it a defensive action. Right, right. For spreading democracy. Yeah. So it, the the word defense is such a overloaded, exploitable term. Just throw it away. Power projection is how I get around it. Active passive forms yeah. of power projection. Right. Stick to that for now, and it'll make things a lot easier to understand. Um, like they'll say, yeah, shield, but the the main point of a shield was to to bludgeon people bef- more than to block an arrow. Mm-hmm. Like and and like these days, every shield, like wall stop 
becoming effective after Machino. Like it was really clear once we expanded warfare into the air domain that walls are just totally ineffective right. at that point. But anyway, let's not jump ahead. Okay. Uh, form of warfare is changing. We're on land. We're defending or securing is a better way if you don't want to get the you know loaded terms. Securing our access or our control over this land. Okay. How do we determine that we get to control that land? Because we took it at the end of the day. This is our land because we're here first and I'll kill you if you try to take it. That's how it started. Right. Um, we start being able to travel across the sea. Okay. Well, how do you secure your access to the sea? If you have a port and if you want to get goods from one port to the other, how do you get your goods across without being attacked? Naval. You project power yeah. and you hire a Navy that specializes in projecting power to impose a physical constraint or to um, and, you know, provide some type of physically prohibitive cost on attacking you through in from through the sea. Yeah. Or to counterattack attackers. Yep, yeah. exactly. And what's the complex emergent effect of naval battles? Decentralization of control over the sea. No one nation, person, polity has centralized control over the sea. Right. That good can get to that good, or that that good can get from that port to that port on the other side of the world, and you re, you have without a reasonable fear of it being attacked. Maybe if you're like around Somalia, you should probably think twice. But like, what happened when the Somalian pirates captured an American vessel? Okay, do you notice how we don't negotiate? We don't try to sit down. No, we'll just kill you. Uh huh. So. Um, that's how you secure zero trust, decentralized access to the sea. Let's say humans, um, so we do that for a while and we get really efficient mm-hmm. at, at projecting power through the land and the sea. All right. Uh, we figure out a fly. We invent the flying machine that gets back to the tweet storm I had where, yeah. um, if, if, on, if the only thing you've ever seen for 10,000 years is technology for, um, projecting power on the land and the sea, then when this airplane comes up, you're not really going to recognize right. the importance of it yet. And so that's why like General Foch, the Supreme Allied Commander of World War One, very infamously said that airplanes are interesting toys, but of no military value whatsoever. He didn't realize that civilization was expanding into a new domain mm-hmm. and that in every domain, how do you physically secure your access to that domain? How do you achieve zero trust access to the domain? How do you decentralize control over that domain? Gotta project power. So airplanes are going to be your way to do it. Okay. So civilization expands into the air and you get air forces. This is such an amazing quote. Because like the lead allied commander of... Supreme Supreme allied commander of of World World War War I. The victorious supreme allied commander of World War I, General Ferdinand Foch. Basically says airplanes are of no military value. And then by World War II... It's the main show. Defining feature yeah. military value. Yeah. That quickly. And by the way, that was slow in comparison to cannons. Yeah. So when Orban the engineer, iron foundry engineer, goes up to Constantinople, says, Hey, I'll 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 cast this big ass iron cylinder. I'll fill one end with gunpowder, one end with a stone ball. You can use this to sh- shoot the stone ball without like a catapult at your invading like the you know Ottomans yeah. Emperor uh, Sul- or Sultan Mahmed who's like being aggressive, uh, Constantine, Emperor Constantinople the 11th or whoever he was in 1453 said, no, we're fine. 
a year later, he's dead because of the canon siege of Constantinople. Right. <laughs> Sultan Mahmed, the 19-year-old millennial, yeah. overthrows the boomer who didn't realize that the technology <laughs> is changing the way of warfare. Right. right. It's the same story over and over again. By the way, I also talk about this in the book. It took centuries for people, for Chinese alchemists, to realize that gunpowder wasn't medicine or that black powder wasn't medicine. Right. So they were, they, they, they were trying to make medicine and they traded it as medicine. And then it wasn't until the iron foundry engineers started building these cast cylinders that you were like, holy crap, this isn't, this isn't black powder, this is gunpowder. Right. This will revolutionize the, the world of war, the, the, the profession of war fighting. Yeah. They didn't recognize cannons. They didn't recognize yeah. torpedoes. They didn't recognize airplanes. Go in any point of history where a new emerging technology comes, everyone who's looking at it doesn't recognize it because they're extrapolating from the past. Right. right, right, right. And especially when the domain changes, you don't recognize it. Right. China burning their merchant fleet. They had the most powerful Navy. Just could have just easily taken over North America right. and colonized it. Easy. Uncontested. Such, such a great point that it seems to be a recurrent blind spot for people yeah. and therefore an extremely important moral of the human story is that when the shelling point moves... You better, better fucking pivot. adapt yeah. quickly. Yeah. Otherwise, it could cost you literally everything. Adapt or die is, yes. is, a, is a section of the thesis. Yeah. And, it, it, and I start that by looking at like old school new power projection technologies like the ability to cooperate, multicellular cooperation. Mm -hmm. These became power projection strategies. If you're a single cell and your enemies, your predators are right. multicellular, and they're cooperating together, you better figure out how to cooperate too or you're dead. You're right. going to be killed. Okay, if they figured out how these like eyeballs, you better get eyeballs yeah. because you're dead. Yeah. If they get teeth, you better get teeth. If they get muscles, you better get muscles. Mm -hmm. And the things that don't adapt fast enough are the extinct thing. We study the bones of those right. animals. Same deal, same game. There's, we just have a different name for it. We yeah. call it war. Yeah. Um, and this is back to that. But you know, what is it? Evolution is biological innovation. Innovation is non-biological evolution. It's yeah. like the same principle or the same algorithm in different substrates. Yep. But it's it's Darwinian or it's militaristic adapt or die. And that was the final quote of the book. In honor of you, I put that. Oh, it was. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. Um, the first quote. At the end of the book, but I don't remember that. Yeah, it's the very final chapter because I I just that's you nailed it. Um, I heard you say that before I met you and I was just like, bullseye. That is exactly what's happening. I'm sure I got that from somewhere, but I couldn't tell you where. So, um, where were we? We're expanding the form of warfare as, as the domains change. Okay. Yeah. What happened when, uh, so, you know, we, we're going to have Oppenheimer come out soon. Okay. You figure out nuclear power. You have the world's biggest pacifist. You've got, Albert Einstein basically saying, mea culpa, I was wrong. We have to build this thing before, the, before Nazi Germany does. You've got Oppenheimer. We have to build this thing. Why? Because whenever this asymmetric you know, power imbalance of power happens, you must adapt or you will die. Can you imagine what would have happened if the Nazis, who, who had already invented... Uh, Ballistic missiles, so they had the V2, mm -hmm. they had jets, they had Messerschmitts, operational 
jets. When we had propeller planes, they had they had V two rockets. When we had nothing, if they also had bomb atomic bombs first, it would have played out much differently. We're we're talking about months, like by the skin of our teeth. Um, and so when the General Ferdinand Foch is say airplanes are interesting toys but of no military value, technology is moving so fast now that that is a national security hazard. We can't afford for people to say that's not a new form of warfare. This becomes very, mm-hmm. very, uh, when we talk about Bitcoin, like if it is true that this new technology is a new form of power projection and you're sitting here saying, no, it's not, no, it's not, that's a national security hazard. Right. You, because you can't prevent your adversaries from. Because you're not adapting. Yeah. So adapt or die. And if anyone's in the way, get them out of the way. That's why Billy Mitchell was basically a martyr. He was like, he, he, he was a martyr. He, he, he knew this new technology, airplanes were a big deal. He knew the United States was on the wrong path. And he sacrificed his career to make an example out of, out of this, to make a public spectacle out of it. How could you be putting so much money into building battleships in the 1930s after what he, we just saw in World War I? I could sink, I have sunk, well, like he, he took World War I German battleships and, and sank them with a single torpedo launch from a, just a cheap-ass little plane. And he's like, I can do this. So how could you possibly build more battleships? How could you put all of our defense budget into, or like huge amounts of our defense budget into this stuff that is so n- in, incapable of handling this new asymmetric power that is airplanes? Right. Okay? You're building knives to take to a gunfight. Yeah. Um, so... Exactly. And like, yeah, that, 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 that is such a good saying because it, it basically like highlights this exact principle, which is you can't be in an asymmetric power competition mm-hmm. or at least with asymmetric technology and expect to, to win that fight. Um, and by the way, back to, you know, tying it back to earlier, if most people are domesticated, if most of society doesn't fight wars, doesn't devote its, their entire career like I do, to trying to understand the power projection game, technology, strategic thinking, new forms of warfare. If most people don't do that, if 98% of people aren't in the military, then of course you're predisposed to not recognizing the new power projection technology if and when it emerges. Sure. So stupid people can say stupid things and people will believe it because they don't know any better because they'd spend zero calories thinking about this subject. Mm-hmm. And so Billy Mitchell stood up and he sacrificed his career. And now we look back at Billy Mitchell as the father of the Air Force. Can you just unpack a little bit about what he actually did when you say sacrifice his career? He, 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 he called. So in the military, you're not allowed to speak contemptuously towards public officials. I do not have the same First Amendment rights that you do because I'm an active duty military officer. So I can't talk smack about any um, politician. That roots... That ties back to lessons learned from this general called Caesar <laughs> talking smack about the senators. Right. Turns out if you let a if you let a general talk a lot of smack about uh, uh, senators, uh, right? You'll a two brute. Yeah, <laughs> you'll get a uh, uh, you you see just read Cicero. You'll yeah. see what happens. Yeah. Uh, Cicero senators have abstract power. I call it if you if you appoint a judge to be the ideological adjudicator of disputes, you give them abstract power. They don't have real power. Yeah. 
They just have abstract power. So senators have abstract power. Generals have real power. Yeah. I call this political power versus physical power. Yep. Yeah. So if phys- physical power trumps political power, so if you're if you let your generals talk smack about your abstract power, that is dangerous territory. Political power engages physical power to take out the general. Well, yeah, that happened afterwards. But first general, but first, um, what's the dais cast? I forgot the Latin for it. The, 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 so the etu brute happened after yes. the dais cast. Right. So he invaded Rome and took over and created an empire. Right. And then the, you know, the political power tried to kill him, but it didn't work because they made a martyr out of him. And then Augustus yeah. took over, Octavian came over. Yeah. So the, the, the lesson is don't let your generals talk shit about senators because it, you're going to breed the next Octavius, right. Octavian. Um, so there is, there, you know, we base a lot of the United States off of the lessons learned in Rome. You don't want your military officers to be allowed. I agree that I should not have the uh, constitutional right to talk smack uh, to about my commanding officers uh, or political uh, officials because we don't want that. Mm-hmm. That's how military cues right. bloom. All right. Um, uh, Billy Mitchell was like, no. Like, he was willing to break that rule, called all, he called the Congress treasonous, called them pigs, called them dumb as pigs. Like, it was just very publicly made an example out of this to bring attention to the fact that of this, hey, we need to be paying attention to this new thing called airplanes. This new technology is going to revolutionize everything. So he, so he instantly got demoted, dishonorably discharged, court-martialed, you know, thrown into civilian. He dies in like the late 1930s, and then Pearl Harbor hits. Wow. And everything he said was right. Wow. And we had to pivot back, and we had thankfully just enough time to pivot back. But we were rocking propeller, we were rocking uh, Mustangs when Germany had Messerschmitts. And they would have, if it weren't for the, you know, you know other reasons like yeah. Germany had the technical technological advantage easy. So Pearl Harbor was, it was Japan saving, saving Greece in that sense, right? Did it antagonize this pivot? Yeah, we're lucky that it happened first. Yeah, we're lucky that right out of the gate, boom, air power, baby! Like holy crap, this is important. Yeah. So we had enough time to realize it because if they didn't hit, if they didn't do an airstrike first, right. we might have been during out the war pumping money in the battleships. It was like, we pivoted real fast. We need aircraft. We need to double down on airplanes. Boom, bam, we win World War II, thankfully, and here we are. Okay, but the point is we barely, we yeah. barely won it. There's okay. another lesson in there, too, that you wouldn't want to signal the adoption of a new shelling point to your enemies. Yeah. You want to do it quietly. Yeah, you would want to. Yeah. Okay, so that's when the form of war expands into, into the air domain, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, we weaponize the crap out of the air because you have to. Mm-hmm. That's nature. Uh, look at the skies. Every do- For every dove sitting on a power line, there's a falcon ready to kill it. Mm. Okay? Um, for every whatever on the ocean, there's a shark. There's a bigger fish. There's always a bigger fish. I think I quoted that. Qui-Gon Jinn from uh, Phantom Menace. All right, now let's say um, we build rockets, okay, and we start being able to get to orbit. Do you notice that the space race was a thinly veiled arms race? 
Russia took German scientists. The United States took German scientists. During the 60s, it's, you know, we have a peace, love, whatever. It's not popular to have a huge defense budget. So what do you do? You have a huge space exploration budget. So you take the literal in intercontinental ballistic missile and you take the nuclear warhead off and you put a human on top and you call it for the good of mankind. Right. But it's no, it's an arms race. We're building the technology to project power in from through space now. Yeah. Intercontinental ballistic missiles, cislunar ballistic missiles. We are all, we're ready to weaponize the crap out of space. Yeah. We, we call it a moon exploration program, but it's a thinly veiled arms race. And we win that too. Okay. So, uh, and then for a time, you know, we, we have, we go uncontested in space and we build big satellite systems that are vulnerable to attack. And then fast forward by a couple decades, China, Russia build space forces. So what does the United States have to do? We have to respond. We have to have a space force. Mm -hmm. We can't sit there and let them control orbit by projecting power. Mm -hmm. So that's why I have space force. So again, every domain form of warfare is changing. But the function is the same in every domain. Yeah. The way you achieve security and control over the domain is the same. The way you decentralize control over that domain is the same. So what happens when civilization expands its presence into cyberspace? The next domain, the fifth domain, through which we create resources, data. How do you secure cyberspace? How do you decentralize control over cyberspace? Why wouldn't you expect it to be the same that we've always done it? There's no substitute. There's no substitute for physical power. Even cyberspace is rooted in physical reality. If you want to secure your data, you're going to need to find a way to impose a physical cost on someone who's trying to exploit you through your data or steal your data or execute some type of harmful control action through cyberspace. It is not rational to believe that we can secure ourselves in from through cyberspace without using something that converts power, physical power, into, in, into some form that we can wield in from through cyberspace to impose physical costs on each other, to, to physically constrain each other, to decrease the benefit to cost ratio of attacking or exploiting us through cyberspace. Cybersecurity will have a physical component to it. We just are waiting for that thing. Is it possible that this new domain is almost um, I don't, this may be a poor term a meta domain of sorts in that if cyberspace with a digital age continues to progress and more of our I'm sure this is something you're getting to more of our war fighting is done by drones right so the land power the sea power the air power is now being controlled through cyberspace that that domain actually becomes important in a superordinate way to the other ones because that whatever occurs in this domain actually dictates what's controlling in these other domains. Yes. Um, in the thesis, it's uh, the future of secure national security is cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. That's a direct quote. Cybersecurity is if, um, I guess let's rewind. Um, we created nukes and general purpose computers at, at the, basically the same time. We had the first general purpose computers in 1943. The first programs that those computers were running were designing the detonators for the Trinity explosion. Mm -hmm. So we designed the atomic bomb from the first general purpose computers. Von Neumann walks into uh, Harvard and says, I'll, I'll be running this for the first couple months. Mm -hmm. 
And then when the second computer's built, he'll, he walks up and it's like, I'll be running this for the next couple months. Von Neumann was designing the detonator for the atomic bombs. Hmm. Um, so they were created at the, about the same time, but like that was pretty late in the war. And now in the World War II was the last proper peer-to-peer war, like where all contenders are pretty closely, like there's not a huge asymmetric advantage. Mm-hmm. Nuclear bombs tilted the scales, but like it would have been a bloody fight to beat Japan. That was a peer-to-peer war. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the very end, like that, inst- like a month after, it was like two months after Trinity, the war's over, like instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, so we never really, we've never been in a proper peer-to-peer war where cyberspace, this, this new domain created by these general purpose computers exists. It's been asymmetric. Mm-hmm. Every war fought after World War II is, is asymmetric power against like super strong versus relatively weak or proxy wars because the two nuclear powers can't right still mate. yeah well yeah that's what i argue yeah. is um the thing about a war is there has to be a winner mm-hmm. a nuclear war would be a war without winners you can't resolve a dispute if both sides are dead destroys the game board yeah, yeah. exactly potentially yeah so it's not an effective way to settle disputes yeah um, again, it's not an effective way to to decentralize control over property or protect your property to destroy it. To destroy all the property. Yeah. So once we've, once we, it's, you know, we go back to, we get, we design our technologies, our weapons to be more powerful and more efficient. Well, the most powerful and the most efficient weapon we've ever created is nuclear bombs. Size, weight, and power wise, you can't get more power. You can't get more punch. Not even close. Out of a nuclear bomb. Right out of a multiple independent re-entry vehicle on an ICBM, one button. I know people, I know I'm good friends with the people who know how to turn that key. And um, that's it, over, easy, cheap, highly effective. So again, humans are walking contradictions. We try to make efficient ways to project power only to make the most efficient way, inefficient way to project power. So a nuclear missile with seven warheads on top of it is the most efficient way to destroy or cripple another country, but it's too inefficient to use. It's too costly to use. It's the cheapest to launch, the, the cheapest to detonate, right. the most costly to actually use. Right. And so what do people do? They stop, they, they deliberately go to inefficient power projection. It's like, Oh, that's too much. We got to go back to just traditional non-nuclear kinetic war because that's the only way we can really realistically solve disputes now. I say that because we have to recognize that, and at least in these four domains that we operate, land, sea, air, and space, is we've already reached the point where our power projection technology is too efficient to be effectively useful. We cannot win a ground war, a sea war, uh, an air war or a space war with a peer and a peer and let that scale to 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 the nuclear level like mm-hmm. it's over and no nuclear power in my opinion is this is my opinion not like the DOD's opinion how would you why would you ever expect the nuclear power to surrender to another nuclear power like Russia's not going to surrender mm-hmm. the United States isn't going to surrender to any other nuclear power right. Okay, so um, then comes this fifth domain, though. 
we're like we're in these other four domains and we're using deliberately inefficient and we're able to win some proxy war some minimal stuff but no strategic level policy dispute like an international monetary policy dispute um we create this new domain and this new domain uh has data and that data is really valuable especially if you choose to monetize that val- that data okay so how do you secure it how do you prevent people from exploiting control over it? How do you decentralize control over that data? There's one obvious conclusion. You just have to know and understand the function of war for 10,000 years and how the form of war changes. And you have to have the intellectual humility to recognize that you can't, I used to say you can't fuck this up because I thought it was pronounced uh, General Falk, not General Foch. But the, the, the same principle applies. You must be willing to accept that this new technology will change the way of war. Because if you don't, that's a national strategic security hazard. And so if nukes come, you got to be good at nukes. If a new power projection system that allows people to project power in from through cyberspace to physically secure their valuable data or to decentralize control over cyberspace, you must be willing to accept that you have created a new form of warfare and, but like, in my opinion, that's awesome. Yes. And I, I think you might be being too humble, actually, because you said for 10,000 years, but if you take this power projection game all the way back, it's actually the billions of years that life has existed. Right. Yeah. It's that human hubris there to believe that like, like we're the ones that came up with war. No, we're just doing the same thing. We're just, you we talk about it with words right. and the other animals don't really talk about it. Yeah. Um, but uh, so if you if you create a new domain that has no mass, which is what cyberspace is, mm-hmm. then how do you project power through that domain? Well, it's got no. If it's got no mass, you can't project power or impose physically prohibitive costs using mass-based power projection technology. So kinetic power projection is out the window. You're not using force to displace mass. I'm not using right. swords. I'm not using bullets. Right. Okay, it has to be probably some type of electromagnetic thing like electricity. Mm-hmm. Watts are watts. I can impose a physical cost on you. I can project power with watts just as easily as I can, uh, or can, just as easily as I can electronically than I can as I can um, kinetically. So it just makes sense if you understand the function of war, mm-hmm. the function of security to recognize that if humans expand its footprint and civilization into this fifth domain called cyberspace, then we will come up with some type of electronic form of power projection to secure ourselves, to decentralize control over our data, because we do it in every other domain, not just us, everybody, nature, everywhere. Mm -hmm. This is the way the world works. Mm -hmm. So it's actually a really weird that we've gone 80 years since von Neumann was running calculations on the first general purpose computer, that we've gone 80 years without coming up with a protocol that everyone can use to physically constrain or physically restrict or project power against each other to secure their data or to decentralize control over cyberspace. It's odd that that's happened. It's like really silly that a bunch of computer programmers are acting and pretending like there's some magical combination of logic there's some magical combination of if, then, and else statements and for and while loops that I can encode into my software that will secure my data. It, 
it is demonstrably ineffective. Okay, the the cybercrime is the third largest economy in the world behind behind U.S. and China. There's executive orders on improving cybersecurity. Cyberspace, you're being exploited through cyberspace. You got AIs. You've got uh, you know new god kings emerging like Elon. You've got you just have all of this crap going on that everyone recognizes, and then people are just like, don't worry. <laughs> with a with a right this next with a right script in Python, I'll be able yeah. to defend us against this threat. No, if you want to defend against this threat or secure yourself against this threat in a physical universe, in a physical universe, you have to use physical power projection. You use physical power. This and, reminds, so, and this is something you quoted Booth on earlier. I think it's uh, a quote from Einstein that you can't resolve a problem at the same level of resolution at which it was created. Yeah. So these logical domain yeah. problems cannot be resolved in the logical domain. They must be settled yeah. at the base layer physical domain. Yeah. So cyber attacks are people exploiting the logic encoded into software. Mm -hmm. So you can't, it is not reasonable to believe that you can just add more encoded logic to secure yourself against the exploitation right. of encoded logic from, from the, vi just saying it out loud yeah. sounds ridiculous. Yeah. I can defend myself against people attacking me by exploiting these if then and else statements by writing more if then and else statements. No, all you've done is just changed the way that you can be exploited. Right. So all these people trying to encode more logic to secure themselves are going through this 80 year game of it's this 80 year fool's errand, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Why? Well, because they don't understand how warfare works. They don't understand how power projection works. They don't understand how security works. They're a domestic, we're a domesticated society. 98% of us don't even think about this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. The re remaining 2% do, but, you know, we don't, we're just, you know, nobodies in the, in the grand scheme of everything that's happening. So we're so often ignored. And so then the question becomes, let's, let's assume this line of reasoning is, is valid, um, which no one has been able, in my experience, to like, invalidate it, mm -hmm. then the question becomes, what's that form going to be? What's that form of power projection going to mm -hmm. be? What's it going to look like? And to answer that question, you go back to the basics of computer theory and computer science, and you think, okay, what's a computer? How does, how does it work? What does cyberspace mean? Blah, 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 blah. And then you, and you're like, okay, you know, you pull that thread. What's the form of this new power projection technology going to look like? What is it going to look like when when people physically constrain and secure themselves in cyberspace. And then you go and you look at Bitcoin and you're like, ah, okay, that's not a coin. That's the future of warfare. That's the future of security. That's the future of people securing their data against exploitation and attack. That's the future of people um, uh, decentralizing control over their data, of decentralizing control over this new resources, resource in this new domain. Obviously, that's it. It's so incredibly obvious, but you have to take the time to step back and look at the function of, of defense, of, or I should say, security or physical security, function of warfare, you understand what it means to be human. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, cool. There we go. That's the first candidate. That's the airplanes of cyberspace right there. And we can look at it and we can say, no, that's not a form of war. It's an interesting toy but no military value whatsoever okay if you want to pull ferdinand foch go ahead but we'll see Don't how that plays out up. yeah um okay wow very impressive um so there are 
problems, I guess, with actually what we're what I've been doing and many of us have been doing in the Bitcoin universe, which is framing Bitcoin purely as money. Um, and now, as I mentioned earlier, and I think I mentioned this to you offline, one of the interesting things about my journey on this show, asking people the question, what is money, is I've run into what I call the insufficiency or inadequacy of language. It's like, again, we're trying to describe this infinitely fluid and complex reality with these little discrete data packets called words that we may or may not have consensus on the meaning of each between our minds. You know, presumably we're running the same open source software of English, but in most of my experiences, people seem to have slightly different definitions of words in mind. And that spurs a lot of arguments. Um, this is something more than money, perhaps, depending on what money is. We're not really sure. So that's an yeah. open question. Um, and it's, I like what you said too, that this is definitively more than money because power predates money by at least 13.7 billion years or the life of the universe, uh, given that the, under the current paradigm, and maybe this paradigm's under question now too, the Big Bang is like the most powerful event and known history. Um, and so what we have with Bitcoin is perhaps a need to linguistically reframe it as more than money, maybe something like a cybersecurity protocol. I mentioned I had Sailor here yesterday. He's reframing it as a certification or an authentication or property protocol, some combination of all three. Mm -hmm. um, he kind of landed on, you know, money is one half of every transaction. So if Bitcoin fixes money, then it fixes maybe half the problems of the world. But there's still this other half of all all the things you just laid out here that humans deal with. But Bitcoin does seem to have some impact here as well, which is really fascinating. So what, and you called this, sub, I think a high marginal cost internet, I think was a, the term you used. What, just to ask about the framings of Bitcoin and the cost and benefit of framing it differently, how do you think we should be framing this novel innovation? The benefit of framing it differently is you make it so that the Department of Treasury and the Federal Reserve are the last people qualified to talk about the national strategic security implications of this technology. So you completely defeat that argument. The benefit of calling reframing it is you defeat the ESG argument because the ESG argument is it's inefficient uh, money. But if you frame it as a power projection technology, then it's actually the most efficient power projection technology human civilization have ever created. Right. Because it allows you to project infinite sum, theoretically infinite sums of power. There's no limit to how many watts that we can harness to secure our data. Right. And because we have chosen to monetize that process, it is the least costly form of power projection technology because it's we're actually getting paid right to def, to secure our to project power to secure our stuff so efficiency is how how many watts are you projecting versus what's the cost of doing that and in every don't in every way you look at bitcoin it is the most efficient form of power projection because one you get rich doing it right right two no one dies three infrastructure is built yeah uh you, we, all the stuff that you see, energy gets cheaper. Bounty program for cheaper energy. Yeah. yeah. So, so 
and if and so th- this is the cost and benefit. The benefit of calling it a weapon is you 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 say it's the most efficient weapon ever built. It will secure what you value it, as long as it doesn't have mass. It will secure your money better than or your property. Yeah. Uh, better than anything ever done. It it won't kill anybody. It won't harm anything. You just have to suck it up and call it a weapon. Well, that's where Bitcoiners get hung up. And again, it's whatever Bitcoin is, it's something beyond words. Yeah. And we're struggling with these old metaphors from prior technological paradigms and trying to forward fit them onto this thing. And, you know, again, I said this to you offline, like I agree with you at the, my highest level of understanding is it's not offense or defense anywhere in this complex fluid reality. It's all maneuver warfare back and forth. Right. Um, Bitcoiners, there's a there's a bend towards peace, and I think this thing is a peacemaking technology yeah. on balance. So I think a lot of Bitcoiners would want to call it a wall or a shield or whatever relative, rather than a weapon. Let's say a couple things. Um, the Peacekeeper missile is like a brutal, <laughs> brutal missile, but it works. Right? No, no world war after that thing was built. Right. Um, a couple couple other things. Every domain that we fought wars in, that we've built weapons for, have been those first four domains where people get killed when you use them. If we expand warfare into a fifth domain with no mass, that means it's a non-lethal domain. We don't have a word for, for non-lethal warfare. Again, Bitcoin unifying opposites once again. Yeah, there's a, there's a reason I called it soft war because that's the closest thing to a word for that I could come up with. Yeah. It's recognizing that it's a soft form, so a non-kinetic form of war, and it's a play on software because yeah. we're doing it in the cyber domain yeah. where, where we're securing ourselves against software exploitation. Yeah. So, so I call it soft war. And in my field, the, a word weapon doesn't mean lethal. GPS is a weapon system. Space-based infrared is a weapon system. There ain't nothing the Space Force is doing right now is lethal. We're building weapons. Yeah. That's why we you have a Space Force. We're not NASA. Yeah. Okay. So so weapon isn't a bad word to me in my culture. It's a power projection technology. It is business. It's the business. Yeah. And it sucks when uh, when, you know, the byproduct of the exercise of that weapon is dead people. But if you were to create a a some type of tool, we'll call it a tool then. Yeah. If you don't want to use the word weapon, it doesn't matter what the word is. It just matters what the first principles physics is. Yeah. Um, because we don't have a word for this. Then that's awesome because now you can fight your wars without killing each other. Now you can fight your wars. You can still achieve the same complex immersion effect of decentralization of control and security over your thing, but you don't cause anyone to die in the process. And now that becomes your first line of defense, not your last line of defense. The, once again, humans are walking contradictions. We, and so we don't have to fight each other for the sand, which will create a belief system. And that'll create like awesome, we'll get a lot of sandwiches that way. Yeah. But someone's going to come in and exploit it. Right. And then they're going to exploit it. And we're so reluctant to go back to channel one, to go back to base layer properties that will let ourselves be exploited at a right. egregious scale to the point where we break. And then we fight each other at levels that, far exceed if we just fought over that one sandwich or if we just settled that one disagreement early on if we just killed like it's like the you know would you go back in time and kill you know some dictator in the cradle or something like that it's like 
it's sad because in our des- in the human desire to avoid physical conflict, we actually create the largest and most brutal scale wars as the end result because we're so desperate to not fight early on when we need to that we allow ourselves to get exploited at egregious scales until everything just breaks down and we, and these things get the animosity just accumulates yeah. and then it ruptures in revolution yep. some kind so now if you had a soft form of war yeah you go to war all the time you fight all the time war is your first line of defense uh, this man this reminds me of Taleb has this point in his books that delayed volatility is amplified yeah. volatility yep like the more quickly you can reconcile the thing to reality yep. and then have a release valve for that volatility that the less buildup you will have. He also uses the example of forest fires in in California versus uh, Mexico. Yeah. Same topographies, but two different jurisdictions. Yep. In Mexico, they let these forest fires burn naturally. In California, they try to control them. Yep. And in California, where they try to control them, it's this delayed volatility. Yep. Right? They're constantly extinguishing them. So eventually it accumulates and- yeah turns into a massive forest fire and yeah. just wipes everything out. Whereas the natural burn in Mexico is just like, it has this slow, gradual stream of volatility rather than these giant conflagrations. It, yeah. And so, uh, the, if you look at like the, the fossil record of humans, uh, after they started adopting common belief systems, there's a lot of, lot of, mass graves there's a lot of lot more bones lot uh larger yeah it, it's it was bad right um and so but if you created like a soft way of doing that then you don't have to work like if the byproduct of warfare was uh, security decentralization of control cheaper energy better infrastructure no one gets killed then war would be awesome yeah so if we just don't know it because we've never had this fifth domain in, through which we can fight wars. But if you create a new domain where that act, that same function produces awesome complex emergent benefits, then you should be celebrating. Hell yeah. We just created a new non-lethal form of warfare. This is going to revolutionize human civilization for ways that are way better than we could possibly imagine. A weapon of peace. Yeah. And, and so, um, so, so I think it's awesome and I'm not ashamed of it. Uh, and I, I wish people would accept the risk of calling it a weapon, calling it a war, because you can say, actually, this is the most efficient weapon ever created. This is not inefficient money. This is the most efficient way of securing data ever created. Actually, ma'am, you're not qualified to be talking about the national strategic security implications of this technology on the National Defense Council or National Security Council. What about the concern uh, about calling it a weapon, causing it to be categorized as munitions? Well, so... Rather than code or speech or something like that. Shaw was was... It was... Yeah, yeah, this gets back into like the dangers. Before we go there, maneuver warfare. What's the lesson of maneuver warfare? The maneuver warfare is you place yourself or you maneuver yourself to put yourself into a position where when you get attacked, you know you're going to win that fight. That's the whole point of maneuver warfare. So you don't try to focus on offense. You don't try to focus on defense. You try to focus on making yourself as flexible and maneuverable as possible so that you can take the fight. 
you can take the attack where you know you can win it. Sun Tzu, I think, said terrain is the first consideration of every battle. Yeah. And we talked about this with Napoleon. Napoleon, his his uh, uh, core system and everything he did at the time was like considered radical and extremely stupid. And through the Ulm campaign and like like just for years, that dude dominated people because he wouldn't attack people through the traditional methods. He 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 equipped his forces to be really good at maneuvering. He made a bunch of baby Napoleons with their own cavalries and their own infantries, and he didn't follow normal supply lines. And they just would just fly, you know, wrap circles around people and not attack until he knew he could win, and then it's over. So he, it was him that really was responsible for maneuver warfare. Clausewitz is given credit for it, but Clausewitz had a lot of time to write a book in prison after he lost to Napoleon. Uh, so learn and learn from it. Yeah. So he just took what he learned and 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 wrote it down. Yeah. And so in maneuver warfare today is from from Clausewitz, but it's really from Napoleon, mm-hmm. like in the French. Mm-hmm. The French in the early 1800s were just good, mm-hmm. really good. Um, okay, but the, the whole point is you're going to be attacked. You, there's going to be a fight. Take the fight that you can win. Mm-hmm. If you take the money fight, you're not going to win. If you take the weapon fight, you're going to win, is my opinion. Mm-hmm. If, you, if, you say, if you say Bitcoin's a new security system, we'll call it that. We won't call it a weapon. We'll mm-hmm. call it a security system or a defense system. Who's the people qualified to talk about the national strategic security implications of a defense technology? It ain't Janet Yellen. It ain't Jerome Powell. Mm-hmm. I don't care what they have to say. Mm-hmm. They're not in this profession. They're not... Right. That this is squarely in the DOD's campaign. If you call it a defense system, what have we just talked about for the last hour? If a new power projection system is emerges, do you have the option to ignore it? Are you going to be a Constantinople? Are you going to be the Chinese alchemists who don't recognize gunpowder? Are you going to be the Chinese who burnt their merchant fleets? Are you going to be the British Royal Navy that don't recognize the Whitehead torpedo? Are you going to be the United States that don't recognize the importance of airplanes or, or Ferdinand Foch? Are you going to be the the um, the people who condemn nuclear power, are you going to be the first and the best? Do you want to be a leader of other nations? Do you want to be a superpower in the future? There is no option. You must adopt it. Right. The, the debate goes away. There, there, there is no debate. We must be good. Right. We must adopt this technology. Okay, that's the fight you can win. And now, and it gets to, let's get into the second a minute. We've established, one of, you know, Americans are first and foremost insurrectionists. If you exploit us through your kingdom, we will fight you and we will kill your redcoats and we'll establish our own independence. We celebrate that. We literally celebrate our insurrection against the king. It's coming up soon. Yeah. And so like that's clearly a core American value. It's so valuable that there's a second amendment that says people, citizens especially, have the right to physically secure your property by shooting anyone who tries to take it from me, including and especially my government. Okay? Um, anybody. They, you look, read the Founding Fathers. There was a reason why we had to make sure that citizens kept the right to bear arms and, or, or, and, and, and states, really, um, as opposed to only the federal government. Because what if the federal government is untrustworthy? Uh-huh. Ding, ding, ding. Power. You know. The judge is the judge. So, um, so they recognized it. We have a Second Amendment. People, what is, what is an arm? An arm is, a, is just a, a word. 
for this power projection technology that we use to physically secure our stuff. Well, that was written before we even had airplanes, much less before we had space domain and especially cyber domain. The form is going to change, but the function of the amendment stays the same. The form has changed. Instead of kinetic power projection to defend mass-based property, we have electric power projection to protect massless property, our data. That's an arm. If we classify it as an arm, then we inherit not only the First Amendment, but also the Second Amendment protection. And then the the people who want to see Bitcoin gone has to, it has a much harder time. It's much harder to, like you can say, like it's easy to defeat the First Amendment because you can just say it's a, a national emergency, public safety issue, uh, public security is a national strategic security thing. We have to, okay. So there's that. And then the second point that just kind of frustrates me is like, I've got Phil Dubois', Dubois um, phone number. I, I know the chief legal counsel to Zimmerman for the PGP case. Okay, the thing that set this precedent of will protect uh, in, like encryption through the First Amendment. Okay, Th- that technology was already classified as an arm. The SHA-2 in Bitcoin began its life as a, a uh, on the export control list protected by the NSA, okay? We think back and we think, oh, Zimmerman set the precedent that like encryption is protected under First Amendment. That that court case was never resolved. That court case was uh, stopped. They never came to a conclusion. It was only after and follow on where they formally set the precedent. And, and then, so then you go, okay, why was that court case withdrawn? Why did the, uh, and the, the attorneys that were attacking Zimmerman withdraw it. We well, go ask Phil Dubois. And he wasn't just arguing the First Amendment. He was, they started presenting the argument of um, why should something that can't harm anyone that can secure people's data be on the export control list? Why can't this be in civilian hands? And that is a much different argument, much different court case, much harder to win. So of course they're going to withdraw instantly. Oh crap, we can't win that one. And if they, if they, if they, if we set the precedent that this non-lethal defense technology should not be on the export control list, should be in the public's hands to protect them against their own government, that's a whole different can of worms. Because what else could they take off the export control list? So what I'm saying is. That's the fight you can win. We know it's a fight that we mm. can win because they didn't take it against Zimmerman. Yeah. As soon as Dubois started b- building that argument, peace out. And so all we know about that is what the public did. And the public was the one, you know, an MIT putting in, it's like, oh, this is free speech. How could this be? Okay. And it was because of that precedent that the NSA had to take SHA-2 off the export control list and had to give it to the public. So you already pre-classified it as an arms and then by legal precedent has to take it off. What is, uh, what is Bitcoin? It's a bunch of shot people just taking advantage of that. So why, why after you've already X taken it off the export control list after all this legal precedent, why would you put it back on? How could you even expect that to be a a politically palpable thing to do or a logically palpable do? Because it's already exported. 
and putting it on the list isn't going to prevent the exportation at this point. So, so you know, maneuver warfare. Take the fight you can win. Call it an arm. Right. Interesting. I don't know enough about that, the exact legal mechanics of what went down in that case to even comment intelligently on that, but I'm just speaking on, I guess, behalf of the perception that I've seen in kind of the Bitcoin universe, and maybe it's uh, maybe even taking a page out of the Department of Defense's book, right, which rebranded from the War Department to the Department of Defense, if I'm not incorrect about that. Yeah. And we're, we're just talking about the idea of reframing Bitcoin as a defense technology, security technology, yeah. cybersecurity technology, whatever. Yeah. Um, in that it would be more palatable to the public. I agree in the beginning. Uh-huh. So there's a reason, like if you frame it as a coin at the beginning, when it's not very powerful and it would be easy to defeat, then yeah, call it a coin, let it fly under the radar. Okay. It's like in, uh, insurrectionist 101. Like if you're fighting, an, if you're an insurrectionist or if you're in like asymmetric warfare, uh, don't show yourself until you have overwhelming force. Right. So in the beginning, yes, classify it, call it a, call it a coin. Let it build, let it brood, let it become enormous like scale entrenched and let it become entrenched in people's minds and then when it doesn't suit you anymore flip back guess what we just created a new cybersecurity protocol a new form of warfare okay and so that's what what i think would be i don't know if it's right my recommendation is this again this is an informed opinion who's this is my job okay um rebrand it now if you rebrand it, it makes no more sense to call Bitcoin a cryptocurrency. Okay. It's a physical security system. No thing that doesn't have proof of work can even compare because they're physically different systems. They don't even classify as the same technology. You get away from this deliberate obfuscation of like blockchain and all that crap. Uh, you undermine the authority of the people who are directly attacking the thing now, which is the Treasury Department, the Federal Reserve, and all the vested interests. You totally undermine all this political propaganda, all this propaganda of ESG. You illustrate the point that we have to be leaders in this technology, just like we have to be leaders in power projection in every domain. You basically win instantly. Uh, you can't go back and overturn 30 years of, of this fight about encryption. That's not realistic. It's not politically or logically possible. And, and, and so... So yeah, you know, the downside is people don't like the word. People right. don't, but it's like, you're going to get, you, the fight is already happening. The government is attacking it now. I'm telling you this, I've, I've been behind the wall. Okay. Um, you know, they're, they're building the case. They're proactively doing this. So if you want the, the way to win, that's the way to win. Take the fight you can win. Maneuver yourself into the position where you can win. That's the way you're going to do it. You'll figure it out. They'll, no, th this does seem to hold some water from a perspective I've held that it would be more centralized or authoritarian governments that would adopt Bitcoin first because they don't suffer from this democratic immobility of decision-making, right? This is one guy or a few guys saying, let's do this or not do this. Whereas in the U.S. we have all this gridlock. If this became instead a national security concern, I assume that would be the most quickly quick to act unit 
inside of the United States is the DOD saying this is a national security concern, accumulate Bitcoin now. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. yeah. The fastest way to pivot, to bypass all this debate, all this legislation yeah. is like, boom, this is the new nuke. This is a new way of power projection in a new domain. We must master it. I don't care. Go. And that's the purpose of software. Yeah. The, you know, like a, a novel theory on power projection and the national strategic implications of Bitcoin. That's the purpose of the book. It is the, it is a step-by-step. If you want to present this argument, yeah. here's every single detail, what you need, just pick a chapter and yeah. use that. It's like a, it's a man, it's a how to win, uh, you know, manuscript for any politician, anybody. Yeah. And by the way, it's public. And by the way, Russia and China probably already know. Yeah. There's a reason why they just pivoted both and have become, you know, right. uh, top dog uh, hashing yeah. hashers. Yeah. Yeah. So like TikTok. TikTok. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. You've laid out uh, a very compelling vision of human history and power projection beyond human history, really. You've described how we have progressed through these different domains and how the solution has always had the same function but different forms. Um, And I think you, in the cyber domain, you basically said that Bitcoin was the obvious solution for securing the cyber domain, let's say, as the ideal power projection technology in the cyber domain, as airplanes were to the air domain, navies were to the sea domain, et cetera, et cetera. I think that word obvious has a lot contained in it for people. It may be obvious to you and maybe obvious to some others, but can we double click that and expand why? Why is it obvious? Um, what, what are the qualities, I guess, that make it the the right solution for this problem. Yeah, so this requires us to go all the way back to basic level computer science, computer engineering 101. 
And we have to understand what is a computer? How does it work? And then just kind of trace our steps back for the, for the last 80 years. And then it becomes pretty clear. So we discussed how humans apply like symbolic meaning to things. So we scribble symbols into a clay tablet or a piece of parchment and suddenly this physical piece of clay or this physical piece of parchment becomes information, becomes a story, becomes a belief system. Well, that is all a computer is too. Computer is just people continuing this trend of imply of applying symbolic meaning to a physical thing or a change in a state of a physical thing. It is just like the most rudimentary way to do it. Mm -hmm. So for example, like the first computer was just an array of plugs and you would, you would put a like metal, you would just plug the hole. It was like array of holes and you just plug the hole. Okay. Uh, when you did that, you would close a switch. Okay. So you have two, so you have two states of a circuit. You have an open and a closed open circuit, closed circuit. So what humans did was like, okay, let's apply symbolic meaning to an open circuit and a closed circuit. We'll call the open one true. We'll call the closed one false, or we'll call the open one one and we'll call the closed circuit zero. Right. That's called Boolean logic. So a Boolean variable in, in computer programming is a one or zero true false. Right. That is the most rudimentary form of information. Mm -hmm. We also have another name for it. It's called a bit. Right. So all a computer is, a modern day computer, is you take some physical thing, whether it be a plug board or a bunch of switches or a bunch of transistors, and you apply Boolean symbolic logic to the physical change of state of that thing. Mm -hmm. When the physical state changes from plug to unplug, from open switch to closed switch, from this side of the transistor to the other side of the transistor, you symbolically apply meaning to that state change as either one, zero, true, false. That's right. Boolean logic. Yeah. And if you do that, if you have a lot of state changing devices, then you can create very complex information. You can you can go back, you can have languages, you can have, that's how information, it's like the root layer of information is tied all back to Boolean logic applied thing. We call it machine code. Would Morse code be a rough analogy of this? You can have dots or dashes yep. and I guess spaces too. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the, the state changes of the circuit correspond to H and yeah. J, letters of the right, alphabet. Right, right. Same thing. Yeah. Um, computers are actually really old. So physical states that we ascribe symbolic meaning to. Yeah. yeah. And a, a computer is just us getting really good at that. Um, okay, so you go back 80 years, you've got the Mark I computer, you've got von Neumann designing the A-bomb about to win World War II. Um, he, you know, from that time period, it, it was a pain in the ass to program a computer. Um, so what people did was, computer engineers did, was build smaller and smaller computers that required less energy. They automated all this stuff, so you have like electronic switches opening and closing. And then they required increasingly less energy to change those states. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's just some mechanical device changing state or some physical thing changing its physical properties. 
you just get smaller and smaller. You get less amount of energy mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you get smaller and less amount of energy, you get faster. So you can compute mm -hmm. things. You can compute more things. You can send more information. You can also abstract upwards too. So you can, uh, you can assemble machine code together to assembly language, and then you can assemble assembly language together to general purpose language. And so you're just getting better and better at um, encoding this state-changing device, the state mechanism. And as you're getting better and better, you're just kind of losing more sight of the underlying computer theory, right. which is you're just applying symbolic meaning to, to right. physical state change. You're abstracting further away from physical. Further away, yeah. right? So now these days someone can learn, it's like really easy to learn how to program. You don't need to know computer theory. You don't need to know any of this stuff. You can just write some, actually you can just go to ChatGPT now and say, write me a Python script that downloads this thing. Right. Okay, done. You don't even need to know how to program now. Right. Uh, the program programs for you. Yeah. So, uh, but you need to know computer theory. You need to know the underlying thing because what happens if, if we've been making this assumption that the best way to design a computer is to become increasingly smaller and more energy efficient. The end state of that is what we have today, which is microchips and like photonic trips. So photonics means you can apply Boolean logic to any type of physical uh, phenomenon to include light. You can apply Boolean logic to uh, changes in wavelength, amplitude, and um, polarization of light. That's how photonic chips work. M tiny little levels of, of, of energy, super efficient, super fast. Okay. So we just assume that's good. Like no one's questioning, okay, well, what would be the benefit of reverse optimizing a computer? Why, why would anyone want to make a computer larger? Why would anyone want to, anyone want to make a computer more cumbersome to use or that requires more energy to use? No one's asking those questions. Right. Cause the benefit going the opposite, going towards consistent with Moore's law has been more processing power per unit of energy effort. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And space and space S swap size, weight, power, time, the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we've just blindly been assuming that the only virtue of computer engineering is making our computers smaller and use less energy so that they can be faster, or store more memory. Economizing processing power. Yeah. And the insight of that is AI. Mm -hmm. We've got we've got such an extraordinarily fast and awesome computers that we we're now starting to get to the level of like near sentience. Like they're they're processing information as, as fast and as effectively as like, you know, animals and brains do. Right. Not as good as humans do, but like enough to be like, oh damn, that's actually pretty good. Okay. In the meantime, we have all those issues I said before. We have it becoming easier because uh, it's easier to program a computer. It's easier to send a superfluous control action to a server. It's easier to send a server request. The marginal cost of computing, the marginal cost of ex of sending data, or the marginal cost of executing a command is collapsing. And that's like why spam happens. Right. right. Server, a DDoS attack is a bunch of server requests. Yeah. Okay. If it's super, if you have super cheap computers, super fast computers, you can DDoS attack better. Right. Okay. The problem, the fundamental problem is the zero near zero marginal cost or collapsing marginal cost of, of sending a server request. Mm -hmm. 
So how do you secure yourself against that? Well, if all the people who've been talking about proof of work for the last 30 years are correct, the way you, 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 you secure yourself against that is to create a superfluous cost, make it superfluously costly to send that server request or that control signal. Right. Okay, well, how do you do that? You could try to encode logic, but that won't work because mm -hmm. it's not really costly. You, you just have another. So, but you could do a physical cost. Well, how would you impose a physical cost on the execution of a control action? You would have to design a reverse optimized computer. And it has to be a physical cost, right? Because if it was just a logical cost and it, Moore's law is progressing, then- You get back into the same problem we're already in, which is you're trying to secure yourself against the exploitation of encoded logic using encoded logic. Sorry for you're, when When someone sends a DDoS attack, they're using the system exactly as it was designed to be used. They're exploiting it. Right. You can s design some logic to try to help right. you against it, but as but long playing, as you rely... Ex by the rules. Still. Yeah. Yeah. It, all hacking is played by the rules. Yeah. I can't do anything. I can't take an advantage of, a, of something... That's an um, important point. ...that wasn't encoded into yeah, it. That's a really important point. Yeah. So all hacking is just people um, exploiting the encoded rules. You know, the, the root cause of all... Like I studied the systemic security of software at MIT, oh. the root cause of, and you know, as they explained it to me, of like hacks and everything, yeah. security vulnerabilities through software is people using software exactly as it right. intended to be used. Right. It was just an incompetent software developer. Right. Or, you know, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just impossible to truly secure encoded logic against systemic exploitation using just encoded logic. But there's no hacking the laws of physics. Yeah, physics is exogenous to the system. So back to Jeff Booth, you can't, or whoever had the original quote, you got to exit the system. A good way to exit the system is go get out of cyberspace and use something to, to constrain the computer through physical reality. So instead of trying to encode logical constraints against the execution of some unsafe control action or some harmful signal that can be exploited, just physically constrain the computer. Well, how do you design a, how do you physically constrain a computer? You create a physically expensive computer. You, you, you create, you deliberately create a computer that is physically constrained. That is difficult to change the state. The state mechanism is actually physically difficult. It's big. It requires a lot of energy. So there you go. There's the, there's the advantage of reverse optimizing a computer to not be as small and energy efficient as possible, but to be as large and energy intensive as possible. Because if you created that computer, that would be a physically constrained computer. Right. And, it, and you could use that computer to impose physically prohibitive costs on people. And it would have low throughput. It would, have, it would be slow. Yeah. It would take a long time and a hell of a lot of energy, and it would be so gigantic that not even entire countries can, can hold it, can control it, okay? So you've got a microchip. On, on one side of the optimization equation, you've got people building photonic chips and microchips. In your words, if you reverse optimize it, I'm using your words, I'm giving you credit because this is awesome. What would a macrochip look like? Right. Okay, so if you wanted to think of like what the largest and most energy intensive computer chip would look like, then it stands to reason, I would argue, that this macro chip, this largest and most energy intensive 
computer chip would be the global electronic power grid. It would be a planetary scale, physical state changing mechanism where you apply Boolean logic to massive quantities of physical power drawn out of this giant macro chip called the global power system. And all you would have to do, like anything else in computer theory, is apply Boolean logic to it. You just say those watts or that change of watts is a bit. You convert watts to bits. Wow. So obviously the answer is Bitcoin. That is clearly what Bitcoin does. Now you, I think you said you used this image in the book, but the image that's just blaringly bright in my mind right now is that picture of a computer chip next to like a cityscape. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's basically saying these are fractal, fractal reflections of one yeah. another. And so what you're saying is like the, the micro, microcosm of the global energy grid is a microchip and the macrocosm of a microchip is the global energy grid. A, a microchip is electricity traveling across circuits. Yeah. A power grid is electricity <laughs> passing across circuits. Yeah. It is the exact same technology. Yeah. The only difference is one small and uses not a lot of energy and one's huge and uses a hell of a lot of energy and is increasingly using more energy. As above, so below. It's the same technology. From, from a computer theory, computer science perspective, it's trivial. The problem is people don't understand why they would want to do that because they don't understand how security works. They don't understand the value of physically constraining something through cyberspace. They don't understand everything that we just talked about. So thinking only inside of the logical domain and not taking it to its... That, to the radical roots. Well, there's that, but also at the same time in the in the profession of uh, of like computer science, but especially computer programming. Right now, it's considered virtue to abstract and ignore everything below your general purpose mm -hmm. language. If you're if you're like a a developer, like you're encouraged just abstract everything down than what you're working on. It's too complex. It's not a bad heuristic. It's, it's a legit heuristic. The problem is, what if you change the base layer state mechanism? Would you recognize that it's been changed? Or do you think it's an inefficient peer-to-peer -peer cache system? Right, right. Right? So, but, but before we get there, back to computer theory. Okay, so information, bits of information can represent any, any kinds of information. So if you choose to use those bits as financial information, then it makes perfect sense to call it a Bitcoin. Bits of coin, because you've chosen to monetize that thing and choose represent it as, but bits can represent anything. Mm. So when like Sailor starts talking about like, hey, we should probably call this a property network because those bits could also represent property. Mm -hmm. We're starting to expand our horizons. If it, if bits can represent coin, they can represent anything. So anything that can be represented as bits can now be secured using physical power. That data, whatever you decide to use it for, is now physically secure. That data, whatever you decide to use it for, is globally decentralized because it's on a computer that literally no freaking nation can, can, like, it's bigger than a nation. Like, physically, mm -hmm. bigger, the computer is bigger than a nation can control. It uses more energy than any nation can summon. Um, so it's almost not even an internet. It's just one computer. I call it a planetary computer because mm -hmm. it's, it's like, if you look at it at the macro scale, it's actually kind of remarkable. And, and, um, you know, it goes back to ARPANET. We, we, the, 
TCP/IP started to pass ARPA information back and forth to each other. Then we had to generalize it because we we're like, holy crap, this protocol is useful for all kinds of information. The people who encoded our ARPANET or built it at the time could have never imagined TikTok. They could have never predicted cat pictures, memes, and stuff like that. For them, this was exclusively a network to send ARPA information back and forth to each other, command and control, usually nuclear command and control signals or, you know, military style. Okay. So then they're like, okay, this protocol is actually great for all kinds of information, not to just not limited to ARPA information. We'll make a more generic term for it. We'll call it internet. Same for, I think, same for Bitcoin. You've created a new base layer machine, new base layer state mechanism, reverse optimized to be as large and physically constraining as possible. You've created a, a physically constrained and thermodynamically sound intranet or internet, whatever you want to call it, a network of computers passing information. Those bits are scarce. There's 21 million times 100 million bits of information. You can use those bits as, as, as whatever you want. Remember, when, when, uh, when Back created uh, ha uh, proof of work, it was originally a stamp. He called it stamp. He called those bits stamp. Okay, it was for email. Um, the, the paper that introduced the term proof of work called it a, a bread pudding protocol. They've given arbitrary names. It's just, just a phenomenon in computer science. You call every way, everything that you use to describe software is like a metaphor because even the term software itself is a metaphor. Mm -hmm. You're just choosing to describe how you denominate or how you view these bits of information passing across each other. Uh, interesting point. There's a great book, Metaphors We Live By, argues that all language is metaphor. Yeah. Like the word to understand, to stand beneath and yeah. a deeper understanding. So that's interesting that we apply that as we develop novel softwares. Yeah. So uh, bits of information can represent any kind of information to include, but clearly not limited to financial information. Uh, if you create this awesome new physically constrained, super physically constrained, secured, globally decentralized, both physically and control structure over that thing, decentralized, then that would be a really freaking awesome uh, financial information system. So clearly the first use case of that thing would be a coin or a first good one. Because if you monetize the information and you give that like information or you let these like people who are building this physical defense architect architecture around it money then you actually see the development of this internet really quickly so by making um the first use case of this new what hal finney would call a reusable proof of work network mm -hmm. by making it a financial system you actually see the development of it faster you you, mm -hmm. you monetize the building of this internet really really quickly because mm -hmm. all these people are making a boatload of money doing it and um but we have to recognize that it's only been 13 years. This has already started to denominate more than just monetary information. And, and we have to recognize that for like, you know, more than twice as long as Bitcoin ex has existed, proof of work was first and foremost considered a cybersecurity technology, a way to a countermeasure against denial of service attacks or all sorts of, of, of cyber exploitations. So proof of work began its life as a cybersecurity system. It was only discussed as a cybersecurity system. Um, it was Satoshi who, and you know, a little bit with like Hashcash, 
who started saying, actually, you know, a good use case is, you know, money. And so they named it after its first use case, but we named black powder medicine because its first use case was medicine. That doesn't mean it's only going to be useful as medicine. We could have, no kidding, created a new form of power projection for a new domain. And we're just missing the bigger picture because for whatever reason. So um, I think this gets into like the, like the final chapters of um, chapter five to wrap this whole thing up. We just discovered a new domain. We just discovered a precious new resource. Data is the new precious resource for the 21st century. We've been struggling to secure our data. We've been, we've been struggling, we're clearly struggling, struggling to secure control over cyberspace. God kings are coming up every left and right, new threats, AI everywhere. Everyone knows there's a problem. We've got to figure out a way to secure ourselves. Um, this thing that we call Bitcoin, I think actually represents a new base layer protocol of the future state of the internet. It is a reverse optimized form of the internet where everything else in the internet is like building towards faster, cheaper, less energy. These Bitcoiners are building towards more larger, more energy. People don't recognize that the, the physical differences because they're not paying attention. They don't understand the benefits of physical security because they don't know squat about physical security because 98% of them don't study this. Um, and and people are just look overlooking it except for our adversaries they're clearly see something in this because they're pivoting quickly and um if it is no kidding this new i argue in the thesis in the book uh, software that the more accurate way to describe bitcoin is to call it bit power this was my biggest like this was my contribution after sailor came on and called it energy I was in those early days saying, we, it's not energy, it's energy over time. It's energy with a purpose, it is power. Right. You, 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 you have to call out the purpose of the energy expenditure. Mm -hmm. The purpose of the energy expenditure is, is security, it's physical security. Um, so I think a more accurate way to describe Bitcoin is bit power. I think it'll eventually be known as bit power, a global base layer bit power protocol that all people, nations can subscribe to, to physically secure their, their data or their software against sensitive control actions that could be exploited. Not everything, you don't want like a, you don't want everything running on Bitcoin because it would be really slow. But for those certain control actions that you don't wanna be exploited, like the ability to right. write the ledger, for example, right. you want that to be physically constrained or the ability to spam you you want that to be physically constrained. We've already proven this works. Yeah. Um, it, there, it's, it's incontrovertible that proof of work works as a cybersecurity protocol because Bitcoin Exist. proves that proof of work yeah. works. It's right. recursively valuable. It uses this physical constraint to secure itself against, against centralized control. So by virtue of the fact that it works, we know proof of work works. So why don't we start using this bad boy as Hal Finney intended as a reusable proof of work network, not a Bitcoin network, and figure out what else we could use this for. I think that's a, what we're going towards, and I think it's just gonna take a hot minute for, for uh, people to see it, but like with the awesome work that's happening on Lightning, 
with the with the new stuff that's happening on Nostra, with with all these other second layer stuff, I think what we're seeing is uh, the strangler fig pattern in in software, which is we I know that we've talked about like kudzu. Um, you got a tree, you got a strangler fig. The way a strangler fig works is it like it's really strong and it grows up the tree and it grows up the branches. It's not like kudzu where it's like flimsy. It kills the tree. The tree rots out. What's left is this beautiful, like spirally exoskeleton vine called the figler, the strangler fig vine. Mm -hmm. It strangles out. So this is a term used whenever you're replacing an old school, outdated architecture in cybersecurity with a new school um, architecture. And the way it works is you create this new architecture and then you just add one feature. You take one feature off old architecture and add it to the new one. And then as you're adding more features to this new architecture, you're slowly strangling out the old one until the old one dies away and you're only using the new architecture. Bitcoin is the strangler fig pattern to the internet. And, and money is the first, is the first wrap around the tree. Oh. But, oh. but next is freedom of speech. Right. Next is decentralize this. Next is decentralize that. You're going to, you're going to add more functionalities. That's what like the second other layers and other stuff is. Yeah. Until you get to a point where you've created a physically secure, thermodynamically sound, base, new base layer internet that you can use for all the most sensitive control actions that you need to um, defend yourself. And, and a global macro chip. A global macro chip. Every, people need a, a, a base layer power projection protocol. All people and nations are missing a way to project power against each other in, from, and through cyberspace. Bitcoin has solved that by converting power itself to bits. It's the most elegant and simple solution you could think of. It's just you don't see it because we're talking about money. We're not well, talking you know, about it's, it's intimately connected, though, to it is close the elemental it. question of what is money. One of the defining features of money is that it preserves purchasing power across time. Yeah. Purchasing power. Um, and purchasing power only exists as a result of monetization. So maybe it is, again, just the words we're using to get kind yeah. of one layer deeper, right? If you look right beneath money, well, what is money doing? It's preserving purchasing power. What is purchasing power? It's this sort of non-legal informal claim on the efforts of others, a socially emergent agreement, if you will. Um, but it's also, that's just the energies of man. Obviously, there's also the energies of watts we're producing and selling to the Bitcoin mining network to secure our property and, and certification and authentication and all the monetary protocols that it enables. So it's fascinating. Think, think about this. You've said and argued that money is information. Okay. We've argued that a computer is information, symbolic meaning that we apply to some physical thing. So money is symbolic meaning that we apply to some physical thing. We, we, we we apply this information. We convert gold into information. It's a game theoretic symbolic assignment. Like yeah. no one decides. We kind of all figure it out. We zero in on it over time. And and gold is a great way to convert a physical thing into information because it's physically constrained. Right. You can't find it. Yeah. It's hard to move. Yeah. Uh, so it is actually because of that physical constraint a great way to secure your information against exploitation. That's why gold is great money. Yeah. 
Okay. We changed off gold to a computer network, but it was a computer network where some person behind the scenes has the ability to print money at zero marginal cost. They can exploit you through that. So what you've effectively done is just found another base layer physical phenomenon to, to apply symbolic meaning to, to represent the information that you freely choose to call your money. It's, it, it makes perfect sense that Bitcoin would be digital gold. And I shouldn't argue that it isn't money. I'm just saying it ain't just money. It's much more than that. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense that the first use case for the most physically secure information network ever built, this reverse optimized network that empowers people literally to physically constrain bad guys, the way nature works, would be, it makes perfect sense that would be, you know, a perfect money. Perfectly scarce and super secure, the most secure thing we ever did, yeah. the most powerful, the most efficient power projection system. Of course, it's going to be good money, but it's going to be a lot more than just good money. It's going to be everything. Yeah. And the last, I think the last thing that I'll say is this. You, you know, you, you talk about like you could use Bitcoin as a certificate system. And this gets back to like, is Bitcoin offensive, defensive? Is it even useful to make those clarifications that because of how restricted our language is? If you create like a, um, you know, a, a gate and you say, you can't send a control action through this gate or I won't accept a server request unless it's collateralized with Bitcoin then what you're actually doing is saying the only way you can attack me is with Bitcoin. So think about that for a second. People wall up. They build all these gates and say, we're done. Cyber We're going to physically constrain the execution, a server request, the execution of any control action, the transfer of data. Okay. Unless it's collateralized or accompanied by Bitcoin, which is what Zaps represents. You can't like a post unless it's collateralized. Okay. So if you wanted to exploit someone or attack someone through the logic of the system, mm -hmm. then the only way you could do it is if you have Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So in the future where this new architecture is built, the only way you can attack people is if you got a lot of Bitcoin. Right. You actually want that. Why? Maneuver warfare. You want to take the attack you can win. You want to position yourself so that when you're, you're attacked in the most favorable way possible, you're going to be attacked. But if you build the gates and so that the only way you can be attacked is if something is collateralized by Bitcoin, guess what you just did? You just applied a physical constraint to that attack. That attacker can only attack you insofar as the amount of Bitcoin he has. Right. So what does that mean for the future of warfare, for the future of nation states attacking each other, competing against each other in cyberspace? Suddenly, bit power is a big deal. You need a lot of it, and you need a lot of it now. And you need to preserve decentralized control over it by creating and supporting a robust hashing infrastructure. This is the most important thing in our generation, and I am going to... I'm like ready to fall on, on this grenade. Um, and if I have to be a Billy Mitchell, I'll be a Billy Mitchell, but I don't, I don't think I need to. I've got a lot of support Un, like, I'm surprised about the amount of support I've gotten. Jason, you were doing awesome work, man. This, um, 
Yeah, every time I'm always humbled by Bitcoin because I think, oh yeah, I've, I see it now. But every time you think you see it, people like you come along and you see all kinds of new things. So, dude, amazing conversation. Thank you for doing this. Um, I look forward to doing more of this. We'll do a deep dive on software. Uh, there's a lot of things we didn't cover and I really look forward to that. So I've kept you long enough though. Where can people find you on the internet? Um, so I'm on Twitter still, uh, after this long. And, uh, now you can actually, um, get a copy of my book, Soft War. If you want a physical copy, you can get it on Amazon. And hopefully I graduate in like three months or three weeks. So hopefully within the next two months, you can also download an older but free uh, PDF of the thesis software um, off MIT's library. Oh, very cool. Awesome, dude. Thank you for doing us. Yeah, man. It's been a pleasure.